Men on a mission, I'm the Mac Daddy O. Oscar and Soul, here we go, here we go. I did an interview with BBG, and BBG got the facts, that's the place to be. The host Pablo, he was on. He can interview you to the break of dawn. So if you want a show that is key, listen to the cats at BBG. Everybody. Welcome to another edition of Turn Trickle on BBGWrestling.com. I am Pablo, and with me is my very own Big T. It's Tempest. <laughs> uh, Reed. <laughs> How are you doing? Not too bad. Cool. Um, that may fly over the heads of some people. Well, I would hope not if they're tuning into this episode. If not, uh, all will be revealed. <laughs> so how, how how you been? What you been watching wrestling-wise? Or you just been not out too of bad. To be fair, I'd love to be called Big T. <laughs> that actually feels the class. I mean, my f- five foot eight stature doesn't really make us seem particularly big, like, but you know, <laughs> well, in terms of. You're not small in every department. No, no, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> you got big, big feet, you know. Um, <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> in terms of what I've been watching, not a lot because my little man's been away and I. Uh, I feel guilty watching stuff like Impact and that that he's into. If he's not here, he's like, promise you won't finish Slammiversary till I get back. And I've been keeping that promise. I know I know you'll kill us if I don't. Oh, that's amazing, though. Like, I wish I was able to watch it with, like, someone who... I mean, does he believe it's real when he watches Oh, he still believes it's real. I asked him the other day whether wrestling was real, and he punched us in the face and asked us... <laughs> to, sorry, he punched us in the face and told us not to ask stupid questions. I thought you were going to say, does that fucking feel real, da? <laughs> So yeah, um, he still believes it's real. <laughs> unlike my dad, anytime WF was part, he said, "You're not I'll make believe. You're not I'll pretend." Um, to be at the bar after the match, like, like, I should have. Unless Bill Watts has anything to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, luckily for today, well, I mean, I say luckily, we're out of Bill Watts era WCW, and um, what era are we in? Because <laughs> the, the Bruce- fucking clusterfuck era. Because this is Russo's left, like. Two days before this pay per view. Well, you say left. Did he leave? Did he get fired? Or he, no, he did actually leave. But this is, <laughs> and I think, this is the card subject to change era. <laughs> A very forgotten about era in uh, WCW. Uh, they don't make T-shirts of that anymore, do they? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is one of the maddest periods. Like, uh, I think it was Meltzer who described it as the craziest four days in the history of any promotion, and it really is. Like, I'll give us some context on all the mental shit that was happening. Yeah, uh, well, uh, for those who haven't guessed, uh, I mean, you should know because you've clicked on the title. Um, <laughs> we're doing, uh, we're, we're looking at sold out two thousand today. <laughs> so yeah, sold out two thousand. Uh, lead the way, maestro. Right. Not well, the not the maestro. <laughs> oh no, Sadly you won't see him until Super Brawl. <laughs> oh, he made some pay appearances. Oh, he's on Super Brawl against, uh, I want to say against Ernie Miller, I'm sure. It's like funk versus classical music or some bullshit like that. <laughs> That's exciting. Oh, I know what we're doing soon. <laughs> right, okay. Well, it's, is... our, it's our next one in order for WCW. Yes. So. Yeah, this is our 2000 series where we're recording WWF pay-per-view Are you reviews. eating dime bars while you're talking, you fat bastard? Yeah, actually, fucking hell, how did you know that? 
I can hear the dimey sound in your gob. <laughs> I've got no, I don't know what to tell you. I'm eating a dime bar. Shut up. All right, okay. Oh, yeah. So I'm very excited to call the, uh, watch some Maestro matches. But, yes, yeah, sold out 2000 as I will eat quietly. Right. I, um, whoa, there's a lot of context to give. It's something you'd probably notice when you first start as it's a rare time where a WCW pay-per-view starts with zero video package. And that's because 48 hours before this pay-per-view, virtually everything about it had to change. <laughs> yeah. So Russo had been asked to join a creative committee because they didn't really have faith in him booking by himself anymore. He was three months and not promised <laughs> six months. But although the ratings hadn't really got worse or better, mm-hmm. what had happened was his way of like booking angles that ended on the same fucking day or would like start on Nitro and end on Thunder three days later meant nobody was buying pay-per-views and nobody was going to house shows. So although the TV hadn't got worse or better, he'd like torpedoed a lot of the other revenue and by like those events suffering, there was less merch sales and what have you. So there was absolute panic stations at Turner especially with a lot of them that were like Russo's vision of wrestling is not our vision of wrestling, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, you can't have someone be the head writer from WWF. And I mean, they brought him in thinking that he was going to be the savior of WCW, didn't they? Mm, but then he just started trying to turn it into Raw. And it's like one of the things that he does get criticized for is people say he was ripping off Raw. I don't think that's strictly fair. Like he did the things on Raw and now he is doing his ideas again or <laughs> like continuing the <laughs> ideas. Like you kind of rip yourself off. Like, he did a lot of shit and we can throw a lot of shit at him, but let's only throw the relevant shit. You know what I mean? But um, did, did, does that not show though that like he had his best ideas on Raw and then he was kind of one trick pony? I mean, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here that he's using yeah, the same I ideas. Can see that. And it's also just, it's knowing your audiences. It just doesn't work for this audience. No, it definitely doesn't. No. Yeah, he was he was asked to join a creative committee and he'd suggested because they had to vacate the titles within 48 hours of the show. Because essentially, yeah, I can have some sympathy for Russo, but it's also his fault. <laughs> like, for example, Goldberg's out because of that hideous injury he got after Starcade when he punched out the window in the limousine and he like, uh, cut off his tendons and he nearly fucking died. But So like, yeah, you've got your number one guy and you've just reassembled the NWO and he's going to spend the next six months taking them apart, but obviously you can't do that. But then on the other hand, why the fuck are you booking him to punch out windows of a limousine? I know he's meant to use a pipe or a hammer or something, but like, this is wrestling. This isn't a shit action film. You don't need that stuff. Mm. So it's, I'm like sympathetic and not sympathetic. But at that Starcade, Bret Hart had got hoofed in the heat and he also hit his heat on a, there was, I can't remember what move he took, but he, after he's been kicked and he's already dazed, he gets his, the back of his head smashed off the canvas as well. Right. And so Bret Hart had been getting terrible, terrible headaches and migraines and what have you. And he was the world champion and the leader of the NWO. His doctor told him just before sold out that he had like serious issues with concussions and he was going to have to stop wrestling and take time off. So that belt was vacated. But in this build-up time, Jeff Jarrett, also in the NWO, was the US heavyweight champion. And he'd had, in what was an entertaining show, to be fair, there was a Nitro, I believe. I don't think it was a Thunder. I think it was a Nitro, where Jarrett had like a best of three series. And it all ended up being returning legends. you got like George the Animal Steel was one of them. Tito Santana was another. 
But the third match was a really high cage match. I don't mean like everyone was high, but they probably were when they were booking it. But like, sorry, a really tall cage match. Uh. And uh, Jimmy Snooker was the person who came in to face Jarrett for the third match in the series. And like Benoit was the referee, I think. But they do this spot where Benoit and Snooker both come off the top of the cage onto Jarrett when he's down. And Jarrett got hit in the head and got fluid on the brain. And so he had to vacate his belt as well. So it's like you can't possibly have planned for everything to go wrong just before a pay-per-view. But also, you've got a Nitro and you're building up to a pay-per-view. Why is your US champion in three fucking matches against like old guys <laughs> who haven't wrestled for ages again? It's just stupid. But yeah, yeah, that led to the belts being vacated. And Russo's suggestion was that sold out instead, they would have a battle royal to decide the world's heavyweight champion and it would be won by Tank Abbott. Yeah. <laughs> this was not a popular decision and coupled with the decision that he just made to put the tag belts on Crowbar and Flair and to put the uh, Cruiserweight Championship on Oklahoma, he didn't have a lot of friends, really. And so they were, they were all very unpopular decisions internally. And Bill Bush, just who was the president of WCW at the time after Bischoff had gone, started second-guessing Rousseau. The committee was going to be Kevin Sullivan, Kevin Nash, J.J. Dillon, and Terry Taylor, and they were all going to filter his ideas and work on them, but Russo was just like all on out. Like, it's all me or nobody. And he didn't expect them to go for nobody. <laughs> yeah. He they like, were like, truly, oh. be- truly believed yeah. in his ability or his bluff enough that uh, there would have been like, yeah, no, fuck J.J. Dillon. Fuck yeah. his 40 years in the in the business at the top <laughs> level. Um, you know, we'll go, it's- you know. Anyway, sorry, yeah. The main stumbling block, it's rumoured to have been, and he was definitely a stumble block, it's uh, confirmed for others, was Kevin Sullivan being involved. See, Sullivan had been constantly pointing out throughout Russo's tenure, like, this isn't how you do wrestling, that's not what you do, and pointing out booking errors all the time to Bush and his associates so that he was undermining Russo to position himself to replace him as the booker. This decision had fucking huge ramifications that are probably worse than sacking Russo. And I say sacking. Russo just took the option to leave. He was told, like, you've been on the committee or you're not doing it. So he left. And it was the first time he quit. Huh? <laughs> anyway, But um, Sullivan was incredibly unpopular with a lot of the wrestlers backstage. Like, a lot of people hated Russo's booking, but they actually liked Russo as a dude. Yeah. Whereas Sullivan had booked some fantastic angles, but he's fucking despised. And not to mention, of course, Chris Benoit is very, very not keen on having <laughs> the guy whose wife he just pinched <laughs> becoming his uh, head booker. Yeah. So Benoit, Guerrero, Perry Satin, Shane Douglas, Dean Malenko, Conan, Juventud Guerrero, and Rey Mysterio Jr., and I think Billy Kidman, all approached Bill Bush as a group and asked to have Sullivan removed or to release them. And... um initially Bush had just been like, well, you can have your release if you want it. I'm like, right, well, we all do. And he's like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Never call the wrestlers bluff. (laughs) Well, he's just thinking you'll all take the guaranteed money. And they're like, yeah, guaranteed to work with Sullivan. I don't want the money. Yeah. So they kind of made a load of promises, allegedly, to these wrestlers in like separate little groups and pairs to try and split them up and divide and conquer them. Like the told Chris Benoit, oh, there's really big plans for you and you're going to be the world champion, which... He ended up saying Chris Ben uh, no and left anyway. 
you got Perry Saturn was told that they had big plans for him and he was going to join the NWO, but this didn't turn Saturn's head either. Billy Kidman Fucking was hell. promised <laughs> the US title run, at right. least. And Conan was just sent home and threatened with being in breach of contract. <laughs> that's, that's like a proper Bill Watts reward, that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Conan. So what was the... Because, um, again, you know a lot about this uh, time than I do. Um, just a couple of things. Like, Brett, wasn't, Brett hated Kevin Sullivan as well. Um, and I think if he was still around, he probably would have been in the same position as everyone. Well, I don't know. Maybe he just was happy to take the money at that point. Brett um, was very unhappy at the time. Like if before his concussion thing, if you read some of his columns that he used to write for whatever that paper was in Calgary. Oh, Calgary Sun, yeah. He really goes off it about how he doesn't like wrestling anymore and this isn't wrestling and it's so tawdry and all that sort of stuff. And he was very fucking negative about wrestling in general by this point. And, and I believe Brett's final match, because I think general con- like uh, opinion or thought is that Brett's last match was against Goldberg, but he did actually wrestle after that. And I believe his last match was, I want to say January the 10th against Terry Funk. So there really was very little time to... Yeah, you're right, that is. Change, uh, to change uh, things be- uh, before this pay-per-view. So, I mean, Russo, I mean, he'll come up with ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you just press a button, the ideas will just come out of his mouth. Um, <laughs> so another, uh, <clears throat> I guess, uh, for, or you know, if you believe WWE by 2000, that WCW were, you know, not drawing a good attendance by this point. But nope, they had 14,000 people uh, in Ohio, not exactly WCW territory. It's sold uh, out territory, though. They always used to do sold out there. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And what you is get that... with WCW is often there's the shows will be in the same place all the time. You know, like there was loads of fall brawls in a row. Winston at Salem, Salem and, and all that. Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. That makes sense. Well, I mean, that goes back to Starcade, doesn't it? Doing it in, you know, the Carolinas until the movie. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. I mean, sold out it's it's certainly a packed card, I've got to say. And again, not knowing the where everyone was at this point, I was kind of surprised that Flair wasn't there. And so what was he doing at this point? Was he on TV or? I think he was uh, buried in a desert at this point <laughs> and he just hadn't turned back up. If I'm and remembering right. The the, the thing with, uh, you know, the, who would eventually become the radicals, the, the main rumour, which has been talked about a lot, was that Shane Douglas was meant to be a part of that and then that ended up not happening. So what was the, what was the story behind that? Well, the Radicals essentially was the revolution in yeah. WCW, and that's what Shane Douglas was the leader of. Um, I think Shane balked at being released out of fear of how he would be used going back to WWE because they obviously really fucking shot on him in the past. Yeah, I know he fell out with the rest of the revolution quite badly because when they got their release and they spoke to WWE, they were told to like pretend that they weren't and to lie about where they were. And they'd like lied to Shane Douglas about what hotel they were in. And he, he he either rang the hotel they were supposed to be in or he rang the one where WWE were at and found out they were there. But either way, he just felt like lied to and betrayed, uh, from what I remember anyway. January the 16th, 2000, uh, we have sold out at the First Star Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, we start with an all-time classic. Well, there's, <laughs> there's one thing I wanted to add that also went against Russo at this time, and it was relating to Goldberg again. 
There right. was a very heavily promoted, big sold out show at the Tokyo Dome that they were doing with New Japan. And there was a few of their talents meant to be at it. And the most heavily promoted was it was going to be main evented by Goldberg. Oh. They ended up sending Randy Savage instead. And he faced Rick Steiner, which is probably a random match. But oh, it's wow. actually Savage's second last match. His last match is just filling in at a house show because he substitutes for Bret Hart against Sid on a house show soon after. And then that's it. Savage is done. So we're like Savage and Hogan at this time. I mean, Hogan, Hogan was waiting so that he could come back when Raw was preempted. Yes. I can't remember what by. So Wasn't that when like, he ran for president or was that the year before? Yes, that, that's what he's doing at this point. <laughs> and then it's, he was on Veronica's closet and shit like that, wasn't he? But he's like, he's basically waiting for when they would bump their ratings and be like, it's all because I'm back, brother. Yeah. And um, that, that is the thing I've got to say about this event. I mean, obviously there's a lot of, uh, there are some veterans in here, but... To me, again, playing devil's advocate, a lot of the wrestlers seem to be used in at least a new and original way. And there seems to be character development from maybe the year before with a lot of them. Mm, I actually like this show. You know, I think they did a really commendable job when you lose your booker and both of your champions, one of whom is going to be in three matches on the night. I think they put together a pretty good show at the last minute. Do you think during this time that because wrestling is so hot that as long as you've got your big names, it doesn't matter if you change it last minute? I think there's definitely an element of that. Like, I still enjoyed this show. Mm. Even with some of the big names missing, it just shows you some of the talent. Mm. Like, even if big names are missing, the Revolution and the Filthy Animals are two stupendously talented teams and so i think it's quite sensible that they made the triple threat theater which for anyone listening who's not familiar with wcw is basically what wwe call three stages of hell yeah a couple of other wrestlers who aren't involved that would i'm just kind of interested to know what they were doing like people like ray mysterio wasn't there um yeah i know it's, it's mental when you look at how shit the cruiserweight match was uh, uh, who Hoovy and mysterio jr are both not there hmm um, and and no explanation. For, I know you can't include everyone on every pay per view, uh, but no you reason. Can, you should include people who are good, though. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the thing. Like people like that were left off for no particular reason. Mm-hmm. And Scott Hall was, I guess, Scott Hall was drunk. Right. Okay. Um, they were just having real issues earlier in that month. They'd had to do a lethal lottery tournament because Scott Hall was too fucked up to be there to do the tag matches. Oh. That if. If you watch the Nitros and Thunders that those are on, that's some of the weirdest, shittest tag wrestling you will ever see. It's just like every single match ends where one of the thrown together partners turns on the other one. You just think, does anyone give a shit about the tag belts? Um, That was won by David Flair and Crowbar, and that's how they ended up as the tag champions. Oh, good Lord. Right, okay, well, take us forward, Mr. Tempest. So... You get your lack of video package. You just get videos of people getting injured to explain why they're not there, which I don't think the live crowd even knew. That went on for a while. Like, even for WCW opening paper. Well, that's the thing. They were congratulating each other again for getting through it. Like, it was some kind of news. (laughs) I heard, I think it's Tanae says to Shabani, he's like, we made it through. Does Heenan (laughs) say anything during this? I don't think he does. I don't think he knows where he is on this event. We'll get into that more. (laughs) That goes on. But yeah, <laughs> the, uh, you then see the revolution beat the shit out of Conan backstage to put him out. Mm. And then like Kidman is going to take on the revolution essentially as like a revenge type thing in the triple threat theater. <laughs> so you get a long match rundown after that. 
And you also get to see David Flair and Crowbar backstage beating up Vampiro while Daphne's just cackling away. And it, it is a very messy intro to a pay-per-view. But as I say, they don't really have any chance, do they? That's, that is Russo a lot, though. Like, when you look at an event, say, like SummerSlam 99, um, it, it it seems crazy to me that none of the wrestlers have entered. They're just entering the building. Is like the pyros going on? <laughs> There's a lot of that going on. And like even Vince, he's walking in half through through the show, which is just like what? Like, um, <laughs> so it, it gives the. It, it, I mean, I understand that it gives like the sort of unplanned feel to it, but do you want to come across unplanned and shoddy, or do you want to like what's wrong with being slick? <laughs> you know what I mean? Backstage, he'd made it more slick as well. Like he brought in more kind of meetings and telling people what they were doing. It was just the actual creative that mm. was just chaotic horse shit. <laughs> like the actual organization, he improved a lot. Yeah. But uh, as I say, I, I don't think they had a, a chance to look anything other than shoddy and like not slick at this point because everything's changed. Mm. <laughs> that's, one, that's one thing I want to say. It just reminded us when you were saying about his overcomplication and rules. Just before the Billy Kidman and Dean Malenko catches catch can match, yeah, that well-known match type that starts. Uh, Just a wrestling Tenet. match. <laughs> That's what you would think, but no. Um, Mike Tanay goes. He's he's explaining one of the matches, and he's like, "It's going to be a last man standing match. No rules. Last man standing wins." I was just thinking, that's literally a rule. You've immediately <laughs> after you've said there's no rules, you've told us what the rule is. <laughs> Did yeah, you say the, no DQ? Stop saying there's no rules. They used to do that loads at the time. Like, there's always fucking rules. Otherwise, it's just people fighting and it'll never end. Like, unless someone dies or something. Um, I would love to know what the pay-per-view buy rate was for this. Low. Right. <laughs> it was already projected as low. <laughs> so, yes, Billy Kidman, Demolenko, catches catch can. This match is quite famous for being a disaster because of one of the extra stupid rules in it. Mm-hmm. And the rule was that you can't leave the ring. You're meant to keep it all in the ring and they're trying to keep it quite traditional. It was originally going to be like a dungeon match, they were calling it, which I hoped meant like Stu Hart's dungeon. But I mean, if Russo was there, I'm pretty sure it would be a bondage dungeon match where you have to like dress <laughs> the other guy as a gimp and hang him on a pole or something like that. But, like... Well, if they had access to Bret Hart, I mean, Owen and Shamrock did a dungeon match on pay-per-view. So it wouldn't have been completely out of the question, but it would have been very odd to not have like a Hart family member involved. Aye, that's very true. And there is no Hart family member involved in this. But the rule change they made to make it a catch-as-catch-can match was that if you leave the ring, you lose. The floor is lava. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And they were originally going to have the ropes off. So it was the first (laughs) match and you could like build the ropes afterwards and do a backstage vignette or something. Uh And then the rest of them would be there. So it essentially reminds the wrestlers like, don't go out the fucking ring. But nobody remembered to do that in the absolute chaos. (laughs) So you you get about three-minute matches, uh, sorry, three minutes of match where there's like some nice wrestling holds and there's a good opening exchange and Kidman gets a bit of offense then and the crowd are cheering and it all seems great. And then Malenko does the heel thing and rolls out the rink to take a powder, as they say, and it's over. I felt so bad for Charles Robinson. He did not know what to do. Uh, he was trying to get Dean back in the ring. And then I assume, I mean, Shavani was like, he's lost, fucking lost, mate. Like, but Everyone I'm... knows he's lost except Dean at that point. Yes. Uh, and... I'm assuming at some point Charles Robinson gets a message in his ear saying, can't help you, mate. You're going to have to just fucking end it. Um, Look at how much Malenko jumps when the bell rings. Yeah. 
and at the end of the match, like sort of, uh, I've never seen him be legitimately as pissed off. I would love to know what he did when he got back to the. We left. <laughs> that's, that's Dean Malenko's last match in WCW ever. He just rolls out the ring. He comes back in, the bell rings, and he's lost. Shits his fucking pants, looks confused, and leaves angrily. It, oh, I mean, even even Kidman's pissed off, and you know, I think Charles Robinson's so legitimately nice. That he just feels bad for the entire situation. Who who do you put this on? Like I, they, <sighs> they know the rules. Unless they I mean it wasn't made clear to them, but it wasn't it can't have not been made clear to them. And I get it that you know, as a heel, you're gonna backpedal and go outside the ring and stuff like that. But I don't know, who do you blame? Do you blame Malenko for this? No, I blame whoever put the rule in because it's just stupid and unnecessary. Dean Malenko and Billy Kidman would have a great match. Make them go out and have an old-fashioned match. Call it a dungeon match or whatever the hell you want. You know what I mean? Like Make it like a pure, pure rules match in Ring of Honor. Yeah. That would be tremendous. Don't Just don't do this shit. <laughs> you could, I don't really blame Dean Malenko. Mason's note about it's hilarious and relates to Dean Malenko. Hey, Papa, if you get out of that room, this match is over. He's a, he's a very wise man. One thing I noticed about this is that they're really trying to make Billy Kidman the sex symbol of WCW. There's a lot of uh, signs in the audience of, like, thirsty women. I don't know if these signs were handed out, but WWF had... Not so high, or they'll be thirsty for out. <laughs> well, WWF had the, the Hardys, Edging Christian, uh, I mean, Test at the time. The women loved fucking Test at that point. You can tell they were consciously trying to make an effort. I mean, there's an annual that came out where it called Billy Kidman a heartthrob as well. And I'm just like, I mean, I get it. He's kind of, he's young and he's slim. It's like, not that good looking. I'm sorry, mate. Like, no. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no, I didn't really think of him as, as hot or nothing. <laughs> like, but, uh... <laughs> I mean, they put, him with, they put him with Tory Wilson as well, didn't they? Like, so he was like supposed to be banging Tory Wilson, and you're just like, oh my god, he was. Like, you, uh, yeah, you want them to be over because that's going to make everyone resent them and hate them. Because like, who wouldn't want to be anywhere near Tory Wilson? Yeah, yeah. probably one of the most beautiful women in the history of wrestling. That's true. For, uh, you know, for the record, he was, he was at his hottest during the flock when he looked like a smackhead. <laughs> I knew you would like him like that. Yeah. Um... <laughs> So I just thought he looked like a Buffy villain when he was in the flock. <laughs> you know, like just one of the like low level Buffy villains, obviously not a geek big one. Yeah. <laughs> and one thing I liked about this is that Malenko had pyro. He never had a single bit of pyro in WWF. Well, they just didn't do much of them in WWF apart from dress him up as a waiter at one point. <laughs> well, that, yeah, the WCW gave everyone pyro for no reason. Like that is one thing that WWF did effectively. And I'm, I don't I'm think you need gonna... a reason for pyro. I just love it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, they did it effectively, but I do love WCW just throw money against the wall and just pyro for the sake of pyro, like the night rose where the pyro would go off halfway through a match and stuff like that. I, I, I quite like the uh, Catherine wheels that were going as Kidman came down. <laughs> I wish more could be said about this Billy Kidman and Demon match. This just um, It just doesn't really happen, does it? No, I've, would you say one of the more infamous? I mean, and this is saying something matches in WCW. It is infamous. And a lot of people's opinions about WCW, and especially in 2000, come from having read the death of WCW and pretending they watched it. Yeah. So, as entertaining a read as that book is, it's filled with secondhand information and opinions presented as fact. So, like this match, I get why that is so heavily mocked in that but I mean 
I just felt sorry for the people involved rather than shitting on them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And don't get me wrong, WWF had just as stupid stuff. At least this kind of had the best of intentions. It wasn't going into it trying to be... If anything, it was trying to be the most serious match on the card. <sighs> That's what's hard about it, isn't it? They were trying to make a proper wrestling match and it got fucked up. I had a rule where they tried to make it even wrestlier. <laughs> what well, does that speak to Vince Russo as a producer, though? When you... But I mean, he didn't make it a catch-as-catch-can match. He's gone. Maybe I'm being unfair, but it just screams Russo. Because this card does scream Russo. It does, well, the whole era and the way it's set up is you've also kind of got to go with what's already in place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, again, I wish more could be said about this, but uh, I think, you know, it obviously as we continue to do more of these shows throughout the year 2000, we'll see where this led, certainly. Uh, but up next, we have Vampiro uh, against David Flair and Crowbar with Daphne. I feel for the guy who has to make the video packages for this, because you get like a bit of footage with no context at all, just like Vampiro top rope powerbomb and crowbar. And then the crowd mugging away, as is always a staple of the time, cuts to an interview with Vampiro. And then as they're cutting to that, they're like, we're going to go backstage to Vampiro. No, we're not. And you get like a video package. And it just reminds me, fuck me, so much stuff happened all the time. You've got like David Flair giggling to a decapitated teddy bear. And you see Daphne picking a fight with the misfits who were with Vampiro, who aren't there anymore. And then you see Flair and Crowbar winning the belts by shenanigans with Arn Anderson as a referee at the end of a lethal lottery. And then Daphne being kidnapped by the NWO. And then Arn, Neil and Crowbar I think with a crowbar and oh my god Russo man <laughs> he was just hyperactive in the brain wasn't he I don't know what happened if it was Russo coming in or if there was something else or maybe it was when they decided to change the feel of the show uh, you know budgetary wise but compared to say 97, 98 the production levels go right down the toilet in terms of like video editing and putting yeah, packages really, yeah. together um, shit the graphics are as well the, the graphics and, and this isn't me WWF fan picking on WCW because they, they have a lot of good stuff going on in this event and I really do like a lot of what WCW did but around this time it just looks shoddy not the matches but the I know production what you mean. it's just so in flux isn't it it is, and I've noticed that like the sound levels are all over the place uh, on the video packages and the crowd. I, I've said this. And the commentary. Said, and the commentary. I said this to you today. I don't know whether they piped in crowd noise or whether they turned the mic up so loud that you could start hearing individual conversations in the audience. It's yeah. con- it is constant. And not like the old, because I mean, don't get me wrong, the, the old Saturday night's main events were just as bad where they had two settings where it was either <sighs> or like, you know, on mass. Mm. And that was it. Like, this is so distracting to me when you're trying to listen to the commentators or watch the video package, why they have the crowd so loud over interviews backstage and stuff like that, like you say, is baffling to me. I, I get yeah. It's probably something that Russo introduced in WWF and does give things more energy. I mean, look at The Rock. He couldn't even hear the crowd and he knew that they were going to react to him and you could hear it on the telly and stuff like that. So I can understand what they were going for, but they don't pull it off here. Um, It's just fucking deafening. I don't think it's piped in because, as you say, you hear conversations and the crowd kind of 
behaves not in a uniform way, if that makes sense. Like if you compare some of the dubbed in sound on Raw and SmackDown now, you can really tell when there's like specific reactions they want. Whereas this just seems to be all over the place, loud as fuck with the commentary down really low. And, and, and it strikes me as a crowd general, like generally, especially the, the people that they were picking up with the mics that weren't necessarily even taking much notice of what was going on in the ring. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just seemed just like I say, just they weren't taking any notice and it was just casual conversations and there were no big roars of approval or, you know, roars of disapproval and all that. It's kind just of a thing. racket, isn't it? It is a racket. Um, but so yeah, I, I needed to get that out there because that just like, and the fact that everything's fucking gray, like <laughs> ring mats, fucking um, the aprons, like it just looks. That's so a sold out thing though, isn't it? I mean, didn't they not start doing that on like Thunder though as well? I liked the way Thunder looked at the time because that's when you had the like Metropolis set up where there's a sci-fi cityscape as the entrance, but it is kind of dark and blue. Mm, just uh, one, um, this is partly why I really like watching AEW is it's just so aesthetically pleasing before anything else. They know how to use colours very well. And it's beautifully Nitro, lit, isn't it? It is, and Night Row early on was far more visually appealing than Raw and they knew what to do and it's just... It, to me, mm-hmm. even though the, the wrestling's great and the talent's top-notch, like, largely, and, um, you know, that's not even, again, a poly, like, being a WF fan, because they had some absolute fucking dross on the roster in 2000. Um, oh. it's, you know, they just don't know how... To, or they, they are consciously not presenting a visually, aesthetically pleasing product at this point i would mostly agree with that and like to defend your bias like i'm obviously biased in the direction of wcw and when they changed to the robot fanny logo and like changed <laughs> the way the arena looked and everything like there's such a change in how things are presented that i agree like i always thought well not always in the kind of nitro bischoff era i always thought wcw was presented in a much more exciting and visually pleasing manner you know like the various outdoor events and strange venues and stuff the great use of lighting and pyro and apart from the fun little christmas lights all over the wall thing they had going on Mm. i think a lot of the presentation looks kind of gosh at this point yeah it it looks for the like better term second rate as is the intros for the shows Um, Mm -hmm. but i can forgive them the intros on this one (laughs) <laughs> no, you know what, I can't forgive them for second rate Go on. We were getting to it before When they go back and they're interviewing Vampiro backstage there Scott Hudson's talking to him Chono comes in And texts yeah. the mic and like cuts an angry promo in Japanese And then it just immediately like cuts To David's Divi's stable Cutting some <laughs> weird cheesy promo With loads of giggling and dumbness Where they're like trying to be natural born killers but my last just thinks he was on meth <laughs> i forgot how much i hated david flair's laugh it was so forced <laughs> thing it's fucking terrible isn't it, it it was worse than brian christopher's laugh uh which i also didn't like but that's meant to be disingenuine this is him trying to legitimately be insane i guess and it it doesn't it just come comes across. across as on meth <laughs> Does and I do love Gene Oakland Pervin on Daphne. I mean, Leopard definitely never changes these fucking spots. Um, I get it. I was proud of him there. Like, never changes these <laughs> liver spots, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I think Gene, I, I thought Daphne's understatedly hot. 
people yeah. don't realize because she's like scary and insane and that but oh girl that had does it for... and she was great and mental and it does it for me yeah <laughs> yeah um well the one thing about gene is i, I think he probably hoped that they kept it above waist level because he's wearing his tux jacket but he's wearing like sort of beige pants <laughs> <laughs> i just thought you meant because he's got a stunk on talking to daphne <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, Gene, I mean, Gene had zoned out by this point, I think. Um, you know, and we'll get into more Gene and Bobby, but I think at this point, when you're so good, even if you're absolutely not interested, you can do, you know, if you have the right tone of voice and you can just say the right thing when a button's pressed on your back, <laughs> you know, it, it can kind of carry you through to a point. Uh, but I think Gene's, Gene was probably... You know, sozzled for this event. He's, like he's still entertaining as shit in two thousand, though. He like he becomes more adversarial as it goes on, and people will see as we go with this kind of series. The best analogy I can put for it is that when Gene Oakland phones it in, it's still a good phone call. Mm-hmm. When Bobby Heenan phones it in, he's drunk and he's dialed the wrong number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and look, this is coming from like huge, huge Bobby Heenan fans, but oh, I don't think he's any- the best WWF commentator ever. Bobby himself said he was zoned out by 2000 as well. Uh, and yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying anything that nobody doesn't know. He was fucking fabulous in WWF. By this point, he was just a shambles in WCW because he didn't want to be there. Yeah, and you know the whole that night row with uh, the night Gorilla Monsoon died. Uh, you know he wasn't happy with Tony Schiavone. Yeah, because and he wasn't happy with backstage because they weren't going to let him pay tribute. And uh, Tony's chair is higher than Bobby's uh, during these as well. He must have, I know he apologized and everything and he felt really bad for it. And I do believe him because Tony definitely comes across like a genuine person, but he must have known how much of a dickhead or how shit it made Bobby Heenan look by having Tony's chair be much higher. But see, he thought they were having a game, man. Did he really? He is short and he used to put his chair up because he was self-conscious, but it, it was nothing to do with how high other people's chairs were. But then Bobby would go, nope, and let it down. And Tony would laugh and put it back up. And then Bobby would go, nope, and put it down again. And there's like a lot of stuff where, you know, when you're heening and you're like a heel all the time and you're an abrasive, funny heel, there's a lot of the time where he's actually telling Shivani he's mad at him and doesn't like him. And Shivani thinks they're playing. (laughs) Vampiro versus David playing Crowbar. How over and how class is Vampiro? I fucking love Vampiro. And um, one of the things when I was talking about people who have strong opinions who haven't watched it. I'm sick of people saying Vampiro is just an Undertaker ripoff. He's nothing like him. Like, yeah. Yes, he has like face paint, like one of the misfits, which Undertaker didn't have. Yeah. He's just like this cool, edgy, dark fucking lucha guy from AAA. Like, oh yeah, that sounds just like the Undertaker. He's one of my high points of 2000, along with Booker T and Jeff Jarrett. It had a definitely more contemporary feel. I mean, I guess Gangrel was reasonably temporary. Uh, contemporary, but it, it was also um, like a caricature, I guess. He was like an Anne Rice vampire. I thought, you know, it's all a bit romantic and Dracula-y and it's got he's got like the big Heathcliffy looking hair and the fucking mm. the frilly frock and the leather the velvet tights and that. Like, it's fun, but it's silly. It's Halloweeny. Whereas like Vampiro looks fucking dark and cool and metal is out and like his theme sounds like Dio era Black Sabbath and it's just class and doomy. Yeah, and, and I mean this in a, in a good way. Uh, uh, Vampiro against David Flaying Crowbar, is, that could fit in on any AEW show. They look it's like they great, fit in isn't on it? AEW. Yeah. 
Um, and and as a handicap match, the one thing I would say to me is, I mean, if it felt just like a fight, it, you know, the, I, the, for me, there wasn't as much in the way of uh, like sort of storytelling as much. It was just nonstop action. It felt like um, and vampire. It's hard was, to tell a story when it's two on one, isn't it? It is. It, well, I mean, you know, he, he's the I guess the underdog trying to you know. Uh, overcome the odds and stuff like that, which, I mean, he does. Uh, but it, it's 10 minutes of just non-stop. It just doesn't seem so. And that can be said for a couple of other matches uh, throughout the card as well. And it's very of its time, I would say. But at the same time, I really feel that it would fit in in AEW. Now, if they showed up as new wrestlers, I think, you know, you would have to, you know, give David Flair a bit of time, I guess, but um, you know, I think they would they would fit in. in I think the, they would fit in on Impact too. Yeah. Um, do you think David Flair was ready at this point, or do you think he no, was in definite, over his definitely head? not? I think this is one of his best matches. But people also always act like Crowbar was really shit because of his association with David Flair. I actually thought yeah. Crowbar was a really promising talent, and it's just the kind of stink of this era that stopped him being a bigger star. There's a fucking hilarious David Flair bit where Tanea points out a sign that says David Flair is my idol and Heenan goes, that guy has no pants on. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just like move on. That's the one thing as well. You know, you mentioned that Tanea increasingly gets sick of Bobby Heenan because he kind of cuts them off when they're in like mid flow or tries to make a point or, you know, try to put someone over and Bobby Heenan will do his best to just not have fun. (laughs) (laughs) I really feel for Shivani and uh, Tanay here because they're trying so hard to hold this show together, which is already a nightmare. And then they've just got a mortal weasel (laughs) sitting with them who's just fucking ruining it all. There's a really rare thing that happens here that I wish would happen more now. There's a crowd dive that makes sense. (laughs) <laughs> like because this I don't think this actually is a handicap match you know I think it's a triple threat where Flair and Crowbar are just like why the fuck would we fight each other right yeah that makes sense then there's a bit where they're like they're, they're outside and like Vampiro and Flair are together and Vampiro has Flair and I think it's in a front chancery so they're, they're like struggling with each other and then Crowbar crowd dives and lands on them and they're not just standing there, like, holding their hands up like the aliens in Toy Story waiting for the claw. They're like, they're, they don't know what's going on. And then they get blasted out of the sky by Crowbar flying. There's a similar thing when Flair's being helped up by Crowbar and Vampiro hits them both with the baseball slide. And they're like, they're not looking. They can obviously see in their peripherals. Mm. But then the, the crowd spots make sense. They're not just people standing waiting to catch. Yeah, and uh, you know th- this is an example of a match that uh, sets WCW apart as still something definitely more than watchable and credible. You know, like you know, in co- in comparison to WWF, WWF would never have a match like this, and not because the match is you know bad. The match is very good uh, for the type of match that it is, uh, but there's again something very. Uh, crowd participative uh, with this match and very sort of, uh, like I say, contemporary. And it would be long on something like an MTV kind of wrestling show. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, it it just, it definitely, it 
it's unbelievable, really, that like WCW, if they weren't in, you know, the financial trouble because of all the reasons that have been explained, they would have stood a, a very good chance of being a, a more contemporary looking product uh, for the next generation of wrestling fans that were coming up than WWE. Oh, totally. Would have. Totally. And especially the sort of, you know, because I don't know about like, all, you know, alternative lifestyles and all that kind of, I mean, I'm gay, I know a little bit, but like, um, <laughs> but that, that's sort of like all those different like sub genre scenes and all that kind of stuff. It just seemed that WCW did a very good job of being a WF could have done that when they had MTV and they had characters like Raven and stuff like that. But Raven, even at that point, like mid 30s Raven, is he really going to like appeal to? kids and like disenfranchised subcultures and all that kind of thing in the way that someone like Vampiro or in the way like an Orange Cassidy does now or no, totally, Allen yeah. and stuff like that. So yeah, that was a long way around to get to my point, but yeah. No, it, it is a good point. It's one I agree with. You mentioned crowd participation. There's a guy who clearly doesn't get the moment he was expecting. He's got like an air horn and he presses it, but instead of it being like, it just goes, and does like a little squeaky fart and it's the exact moment where Vampiro's grabbed in a rear waist lock and he like jumps and there's just like a little squeaky fart it's like that's not how you expected that would go is it mate <laughs> only second to the air horn that happened during the Ultimate Warrior promo on Night Row that you showed us it's unreal that the Hogan <laughs> one he turns his head sideways disappointed and goes <laughs> I, I'll, I'll have to post something on my Twitter about farty moments <laughs> <laughs> Top 10 40 moments. There you go. Give me a drop somewhere. <laughs> oh, so um, what what is what are Mason's uh, views on this? Mason's note after Vampiro hit his coffin finish for the pinfall was, and bear in mind, he's just watched the Royal Rumble as well. Yep. Why were there so many vampires in the olden days? Wonderful. I, I mean, didn't really know how to answer. Mason's the show stealer here. Um, without that, we can't go any uh, further than that. Except to say, Vampiro had one of the best looking WCW figures that was ever made. Um, real dreadlocks and everything. Yeah. Oh, mint. Yeah. Um, so we move on. Looking like a terrible figure. Buff Bagwell comes walking up the ramp, looking like the merch stand, just fucking shot on him. He's got like popper trousers on and he's got. A denim nitro shirt. I think he's got like a nitro t-shirt. He's got a flat cap on the top and all that backwards. Just like, oh my God, he looks a right absolute prat. <laughs> There's not much explanation before it cuts to the Mamelukes. Do you know the story that was going on with those there? I have some context. I don't, but I've got to say, like I said, with Vampiro being someone who definitely appealed to the, you know, uh, alternative cultures, this is buff trying to and failing miserably. <laughs> failing um, so badly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, please, uh, what is the the background on Disco? How did he end up with uh, the Mamelukes? So Disco had been giving the Mamelukes some serious shit before, and, like, he'd even ended up, like, tagging with old enemies. Like, I think it was him and, what was that Cajun lad called? Lash LaRue. Mm-hmm. And they'd been, like, taking on these two, and, like, I think they were playing pranks on them and stuff as well. But it, they lost a match at... Starcade the month before <laughs> and in true Russo style um, Disco gets chloroformed and put in a fucking body bag and taken and put in the boot and all sorts of stupid bullshit but he ends up basically like owing the Mamelukes money that he can't pay 
So then they're like making him like they, they take him on a vignette where he goes to extort a shop or something like that, and he ends up paying the guy off instead and things like that. But they're like trying. Disco is indebted to the Mamelukes essentially, yeah. and that's why he's with them here. Now, well, can I ask why is Tony Mamaluke on the promo and then nowhere else? And I didn't even realize that Tony Mama Tony Mamaluke was in WCW. Did you not? Oh, he was always managing them, like because he was like the the capo kind of thing, and then. Those two were his goons. Right. I, I always found it kind of weird that they were called Mamelukes as well. Like, I, d- I obviously don't know a lot about Italian-American culture and that, but as far as I'm aware, a Mamelukes like a kind of kind-hearted insult. Like, if you're calling someone, oh, you fucking divvy, oh, you daft cunt. <laughs> it's like one of your mates who's, who's like an Italian like lad like this, but is a bit of a divvy as well. <laughs> so I found it a weird name for a tag team that, let's face it, is racial stereotyping. But it's pretty convenient because they're against a tag team that are just racists as well. <laughs> well, Gene Auckland on the interview, he's like, I'm here with the Mamluks. And Tony Mamluk was like, what do you say about my mama? And then he like walks <laughs> off and I'm just like, mm, I don't I don't understand what's going on. Which makes um, it sound like Tony doesn't. <laughs> and the thing is, though, he just, that's it. That's him for the pay. I hope he got paid well for that. Um, <laughs> it's a waste of time turning up, wasn't it? <laughs> So uh, the Harris brothers, Ron and Don, um, they had been... it they just stopped being a creative control at this point. Oh, God, I forgot about that. Well, the we're in the WWF until about, what, March, April 99, and you can tell that Russo is bringing in some of his favourites from the Attitude Era uh, that weren't around anymore, as we'll see later on. The Harris brothers, I mean, they, they seem like the kind of, like, lads that have got a lot of mates in wrestling so will always get a job like kind of like brian adams uh so they, they came in as creative control so what was that was that like russo's goons or something or yeah but before right. russo was revealed well there were still the powers that excuse me the powers that be mm-hmm. so when russo's gone though so what, like is that when they turn into the harris brothers no, they were already the Harris brothers at this point, but as I say, it can be hard to track it over. Like, if you go on the network and try and watch a Nitro from then, it's split into like 87 segments. <laughs> right, okay. And I've got to watch those Nitro, especially because uh, I'd heard about uh, George Steele and everyone showing up. They want to buffalo that one you need to see as a WWF fan because it's Russo just busting his fucking nut as a New York <laughs> fan to bring in anyone from the past that he likes from New York. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and just to see Tito on WCW just. That would blow my mind. Um, Seeing George Steele fucking blew mine. Yeah. People say about how notorious the catchers catch can matches. Oh, this was shit. And you knew it was going to be bad when Vito's coming out and he couldn't look any less edgy. He's doing like the nose, no, 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 gesture with like his thumb on his nose. And you just think, oh, God. So why are they facing each other then? It's for number one contendership at the tag championships. God, that doesn't say much for your tag division, does it? No, it really doesn't. <laughs> I think the highlight of this match is probably Heenan saying he doesn't want to be there and arguing with Tony Schiavone, to be honest. It's a really this- weird bit. Like, Vito just holds up Harris's legs around this point. I say, I, I don't know which Harris he is, like Harris 1 or Harris 2. It's like thing 1 and thing 2. And he just like holds his legs up and just like mimes bumming him for a while and then Elbow <laughs> drops him in the leg. I say, what the fuck are you doing? I'm like listening to Schiavone and Heenan arguing while Vito threatens to bum a Nazi skinhead. <laughs> Like, this, yeah, this did not get the reaction that like road dogs would get for doing the pump handle and pumping uh, whichever wrestler. I think this just confused people. 
Um, and, and the thing is that Tony seems to know which one's Ron and which one's Don. And Heenan asks him, how do you know? And he's like, it's all in the tattoos. So it's like, oh, you mean- like, I don't read their bodies. It's yeah, it's the one with the SS tattoo, you mean? <laughs> like that one's yeah, wrong. Basically, that's what he's meaning. Hey, uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, the, the crowd get into this a lot more than the commentary did or I did, to be fair to them. <laughs> There's a thing in it that really pisses me off, and it's something that happened towards the finish of the Vampiro match that I did love as well. Mm-hmm. So in this, there's a part where Harris 2 gets away with a blatant uppercut to Johnny's balls right in front of the referee. And similarly, like just before the end of the triple threat match, just before or three-way dances, they were calling them, Daphne got in the ring and like pulls Vampiro's hair in front of the referee. And it's like, thank God they didn't DQ it because that would have made the match shite. But like, what? why are they getting away with this? Just don't do these spots. Like, I, I didn't want to see someone get full-on uppercutted in the dick right in front of the referee because then it just makes it pointless that the ref's there. Yeah. Um, do you feel that this should have had more to it in terms of like, a, I mean, there's a lot of, stipulations and gimmicks on these matches, but do you think that this should have been more than just a straight tag match? I personally would have had this match just on a Nitro or a Thunder. I would, it's not often you hear me say this, but I'd have it like half the time. Mm-hmm. And I would, because the finish works for the story, you know, like Disco is like, oh, I can break free. And he like tries to cost them the match where he pushes Vito over the ropes. Yeah. But then the, the, the mistake that comes after that, actually wins the match for the Mamelukes and Disco's like, fuck's sake. So they get a title shot on Thunder where they, they do actually go and win the belts. Right, okay. So, um, yeah, again, I wish I could remember more about this match. Uh, and I didn't watch it that long ago, but it's nine minutes of not much. Should have been like four minutes on telly with that <laughs> ending. You know what I mean? And who are the tag team champions at this point? Uh, Crowbar and Flair. Of course, yeah. God, um, not defending them. <laughs> <laughs> not well. Again, though, we've just done some Bill Watts pay views where the world title wasn't on, uh, wasn't know. defended. <laughs> but uh, don't don't worry. Uh, if you want your title matches, uh, you're going to oh. get all you want and more coming up next. <laughs> I can just tell you Mason's note because he wasn't oh, please. thrilled yeah. either. Mason's note was just. <laughs> that was nearly as boring as listening to Talk Popper. <laughs> Couldn't really argue with him. <laughs> oh, um, you'll give Melter. I would buy Mason's newsletter. It would be fucking shorter and uh, probably <laughs> more. Be so pretentiously stuck in fucking stars and all that shit. Either Mason's just like it's good, it's bad, it's funny. <laughs> like that, that's kind of my rating index as well, really. <laughs> so where does this fall into? <laughs> Trying to be funny but being bad as we get Oklahoma versus Medusa by Spice, which is at least a, at least a beautiful pair and having Medusa and Spice. That's one thing to appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, so get- this, sorry, this is for the Cruiserweight title, by the way. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> so can, can I have some context, please? Because um, how does any, I mean, how does Oklahoma end up with the, I mean, you, who comes in as champion? It's He's not the champion at this point. He's just stole the belt. Right, because so okay, been... there's a lot of confusion going on here. I'll be honest. There, there definitely is. Okay. Like, Oklahoma had been doing... They'd mercifully dropped the Bell's oh. palsy part of it because that's did... such fucking hideously bad taste. I was looking out for that, and I was kind of like, oh, well, good. I'm it's, glad. it's long gone by this point. It's okay. long gone by that. He's just, it's just a shit impersonation of Jim Ross. Although the, the font for the Attitude Era stuff for OK on his shirt and that, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. 
but I mean, this <laughs> I can't say anything good about this. Like, but yeah, no, go on. <laughs> like this, this, this deservedly won numerous worst angle of two thousand awards, if you call them awards from anywhere. And you get like Oklahoma's been being sexist basically, and then he's like saying women can't do it, women can't wrestle. Medusa's already won the belt from Evan Courageous at oh the, yes, Starcade. I was I forgot that she beat Evan. Yeah, I mean, you feel bad for Evan at this point. If Medusa wanted to power bomb me around for like fifteen minutes and leg drop us repeatedly, I'll drop that fucking belt. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so had Medusa been on TV throughout ninety nine? Because when I'm watching some nitros from like ninety seven, and it's like she randomly shows up after like a two year tour of Japan. <laughs> she she'd been driving monster trucks. Oh, of course, yeah. It is kind of a weird thing that she was always under contract, but rarely on TV. And all of a sudden, by two thousand um, or ninety nine, this they suddenly remember that she's there, and they give her this whole USA mam look, which I know you yeah. like very much. Yeah, y- yes, I do. You can smash diamonds with the stunt gun off that, <laughs> <laughs> especially when she's getting basted with barbecue sauce ready to go in the smoker. <laughs> but I. Oklahoma cuts a, a decent old-fashioned promo, you know, where you're just like winding the crowd up, being sexist and homophobic and that, and saying he wants to bounce uh, Silicon Hooters back to the kitchen or something like that. <laughs> like she, uh, Fun fact, the shirt that she comes out in, that was her husband at the Times shirt because he was a footballer. Right, okay, I didn't know he was a footballer because it's the one that ended up in the army, isn't he? I can't remember, and, and he's not her last husband, I don't think. Oh, but- right, okay. Um, did, did you notice the uh, the little pun on her patriotic bum flap that she was wearing? <laughs> no, go on. Mad USA, because at first I was like, is that meant to be made in the USA? And I was like, oh, it's Medusa. Very good. But I mean, it says a lot about the match that I'm trying to figure out a pun that's written on her arse rather than actually get into the fucking action. Like, bless Medusa for trying to get a match out of this absolute shit show. And you would think that Medusa would, you know, the the... Very talented former ladies champion, uh, knows uh, martial arts, you know, incredible athlete would beat Oklahoma. Um, well, no, even no. though she gets help from Asia and Spice <laughs> as well, which for some reason also doesn't invoke a DQ because like nothing seems to on this night. Mm-hmm. And Oklahoma wins with the worst Oklahoma role you'll ever see because kill me now. <laughs> it, what is worse, uh, this or when Harvey Whippleman was the women's champion around this time? <laughs> I'll put you on the spot. I think Oklahoma. Like, I, you're asking us which shite tastes the nicest there, really. Like, well, well, at least Harvey, Harvey never made it onto pay-per-view and only had the belt for like four days, maybe. Um, and at okay, least... then this is worse then. <laughs> <laughs> so when does Oklahoma still the champion? Who does he lose it to? And when he's not he... still the champion. He stole the belt oh, no. off her and he wins yeah. the belt. Either. I apologize. So when does he lose the belt and when does he fuck off off with telly? <laughs> he doesn't fuck off off the telly for a fucking while. I have a feeling he loses it at Super Brawl, but I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure we'll get into it. My highlight of the match is when. Spice and Asia are both attacking Oklahoma outside. And Tony Schiavone says, Asia and Spice. And I just thought it sounded like some kind of store brand deodorant, like Asian Spice or something like that. Like I thought a snidey old spice slash Lynx Africa or something like that. That like that's where we're at with this match. Jim Ross never once on screen during this time mentions Oklahoma. I don't think it's worth his breath. Um, I wouldn't either. He would have just ignored it probably if it wasn't for how upset like Jan got and other family members and that. 
Yeah. And and I mean, this is what led uh, to the, at the start of TNA, they were doing uh, rehearsal shows at the, in the same building that I think ended up being the asylum that uh, Les Fatu was doing a show with Jim Cornette. And mm-hmm. uh, this is the first time Cornette sees uh, Ferrara in like two or three years. And he's got those dreadlocks in a Hawaiian shirt. And uh, that's when Cornette's like, you know, fuck you, spits on his face quite rightly, I would say. And uh, he was like, you know, if you want to take it outside, I'll gladly fucking fight. And he's and according to Cornette, Bruce, and and there's eyewitnesses. Uh, Ferrara's like, oh, I've got too much respect for the people here to, to you know, to you know, have a fight. And it's two of the softest cunts in wrestling <laughs> posture, and like, <laughs> but uh, it fucking did, is. Did Oklahoma the two biggest mouths? No, softest I get it. cunts. Did um, because I know Russo's kind of apologized. Did Ed Ferrara ever? publicly apologize for this i believe so and okay. like russo and ross were on bad terms at the time from when Russo I was leaving guess yeah yeah right okay but they've made up since then uh, time heals all wounds i guess but um except for mason who said <laughs> oh please right okay <laughs> i don't think the fat hairy one should have won can't argue with that <laughs> i don't know what to tell you um and the thing is the whole <sighs> The whole match, I mean, I, I get it. You know, if, for what it's worth, they're trying to extend the programme. Medusa needed to win that thing. Oklahoma needed to get off TV as quickly yeah, as possible. she needed to win it by, like, decapitating them or something like that so that we never fucking saw him again. When, because Russo's gone. No, wait, no, I, I think he, he ends up vacating the title. It's just oh, come now. I have a feeling he vacates it because people are like, you're not a cruiserweight. Because <laughs> I guess, like, they never say it's specifically a men's cruiserweight, so Juicy probably is. <laughs> it's like far hairy, isn't Jacqueline uh, had the cruiserweight belt in WWF, so why not? Uh, so th- yeah, this match mercifully doesn't go very long. Um, it's kind of like the attempt at comedy piss break, <laughs> settle the crowd down. Uh, but it did, you know. Put it this way, we would be at the bar during that match, 100%. Would we have time, though? That's the thing. It only went three minutes. That was probably the best thing about it. Well, that and, you know, you get to see Magus's bum, which... That's true. That's true. Uh, so, yeah, we move on. <laughs> uh, a positive, I thought. When you see Gene interviewing Brian Nobbs about his upcoming hardcore belt defence, I thought Nobbs had really embraced the changes of 2000 really well. Going from being a nasty boy to he looked very two thousand, you know the like, you know the spiky blonde flat top and the like urban camo pants and the sleeveless shirt and that. I thought he looked pretty cool and he'd really embraced the time period. He did, and you know he would end up probably because of this time period really paying for it physically uh, compared to Sags. I know he ended up on like walking stick on crutch. I mean he put on a lot of weight. I, I haven't seen knobs do anything for ages i don't know if he's lost the weight or whatever but uh one thing i like about wcw's hardcore division is it actually feels like a division whereas yeah. wwf it kind of feel like felt like if you were being pushed down after mankind and boss man and road dog and all those big names held it it felt like when you were being pushed down the card or they tried that 24 7 thing where it really didn't matter who held the belt and there wasn't a division at this point but wcw had a very good credible hardcore division I have a feeling the first match was Nobbs and Norman Smiley and one of those as the initial hardcore champion. I can't remember exactly when. It's a, I haven't seen much of 99 since 1999. So like <laughs> my memory of it's 
pretty, pretty vague, but I'm pretty sure it's either Smiley or Nobbs as the first champion. This is a fatal four-way match for the WCW Hardcore Championship. A little funny, uh, when a, a, an old customer at the wrestling shop I used to work at who bought every single belt that we had in stock, including the WCW Hardcore belt, they all <laughs> ended up in cash converters. And uh, a few of us made out like bandits because the person working there was left in charge of pricing the belts because of like, we don't know. And he got like a signed Austin winged Eagle. Uh, oh I got, my fuck. I know. Right. And a million, I got a million dollar belt in an attitude era in a corner belt just because they were so cheap. And yeah, just a few of it. It was a proper little racket going on. The only one that no one wanted was the WCW hardcore title. And I remember being in there one day and it was, it was there and some old Nana came in and bought it for our son who definitely would not have known what the WCW <laughs> hardcore title was. Oh, man. <laughs> and the thing is, that's something that like you would treasure now if it was. I was just thinking, I wish I had that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this is a fatal four match WCW hardcore title. Brian Nobbs, Fit Finley, who looks class, I've got to say, Norman does, Smiley, and fucking Meng. And he is so suited for this shit. <laughs> no matter how silly the dress Meng up and can't figure out what to do with him. He's always mega over with the WCW crowd just because they appreciate that he's hard as fuck. They just, they let him run and be himself. And when he came back to WWF a year later, and I never understood why, and there's probably, I'm sure there's a story behind it, but he showed up as a surprise entrant at the Rumble. This was before WCW got bought. Um, He had the same character, but they did absolutely nothing with him outside of a couple of matches with Taker and Kane. Uh, did they one, call him Meng or was he back to being Haku? No, he was back to being Haku, which I understand. Uh, but he was basically the same, uh, you know, same gear, same hair. Uh, but do we, f- no one, including like, you know, Tenter and Bossman and I mean, Beefcake for what it's worth. No one went through as many changes as Meng in WCW and had them all be over. People just loved him because he was hard. I think he really fit into the... The, the great thing about the hardcore division in WCW, and it's one of the things people always shit on it for, it's the fact that it is actually lighthearted and funny. So you've got ECW does great hardcore stuff. And this was like, rather than have a slow match or a boring match or something that breaks the card up, you just used to get good comedy stuff. This is why Norman Smiley was one of my favorite guys from the time. Look at him coming out in the stab-proof vest and the riot shield and the helmet because he's fucking so scared of Meng. One th- well, Isn't that's that th- tremendous? That's the one thing that uh, I remember from the time that he would scream when he was in the presence <laughs> of men because he was so fucking terrified of him, as you would be. Um, and one thing I love about this, that the, the WWF matches, I mean, they ended up going this way with the hardcore matches, that it was so many planned spots and going outside and, uh, you know, tables conveniently placed. It's and- not chaotic. It's not chaotic and it's made to seem chaotic, but it's also not funny. And there's very little drama. And when they go outside the arena, you lose you lose the crowd um, by that point. So, you know, this match is a lot of fun, I've got to say. And, and the, the right length, I must say, because you can become a bit too used to people getting whacked out of the head with stuff. But the crowd mm-hmm. are way into this. The way they did the title change on the Thunder before this was really fun as well. That had like Norman's 
still he's always trying to say like he's brave and he's not scared and then he does the screaming things like you say <laughs> but they're like they force him outside because Nobbs is waiting for him outside and they like lock him out of the fire door so he has to have a match with him in the like back lane and he can't escape and that's how he ends up losing the belt and I just thought that was really fun the, the whole thing's really fun like I couldn't decide whether Fit Finley looked like a kind of guile from Street Fighter if he was at a social club costume party <laughs> Or if him and Nobbs being in matching gear made them look like a really butch lesbian couple more, more than a tag team, but it all just added to my enjoyment. <laughs> of the match. Oh, Finley's arms looked amazing on this. I, he didn't strike us as the type who worked out that much. I think he had like the probably the uh, the Harley race workout of a tab and a push up, <laughs> uh, a few press ups, some Hindu squats, and then a, a tin of pearl. <laughs> Oh, did, yeah. you like, did you like Nobbs bringing the bins in like he was a Duke the Double Dumpster Drosy <laughs> and the bin in each hand? I, I really did. Yeah, but Nobbs, and I mean, because Bam Bam's a part of this division as well, isn't he? And it is just hard fat lads <laughs> just bringing each other with, with bacon <laughs> trays and stuff. <laughs> I love it, mate. It's, it's just good physical comedy, you know, like when Meng kicks the bin into Norman Smiley's face, that probably made us laugh. He's definitely yeah. the hardest guy who's ever worn genie trousers with an afro at the same time. <laughs> you know, there's like a bit where Finley, he go, he puts on the helmet to headbutt someone. I'm just like, that's great. Or like, you know how Smiley like sneaks up on knobs and he's like checking if he's unconscious so he can pin him. It's all just great fun stuff. It is. And I think the one thing that this match particularly is missing, I think this kind of match with a more suited commentary team would have been great. Dusty commentating on this would have oh, been amazing. It's so fun. <laughs> Do you know how they brought in like Tene for the cruiserweight matches and all that kind of stuff? If they brought in Dusty for the daft matches. Bring, bring in Dusty for the comedy <laughs> fat lad matches. I'd be all over that though. I love that shit as well. Like I have that weird mixture of loving really silly bullshit and then like really technical long matches and not a great deal in between but like i like those those two things very well i quite like the finish spot as well you know where like knobs knife sticks uh smiley out of the sky to pin him <laughs> yeah and it's the world's I... smallest knife stick <laughs> well, the one thing as well about this match is god you look at the star power when you think about it in this like sort of you know just mid-card match for a comedy title You'd kill for that now. Like, oh, totally. Happy. They're all really over guys. Yeah, they are. They're over guys and they know what they're doing. They're not going to do anything stupid in terms of like just unplanned stuff or fuck anything up. Like you can't mess up hitting someone over the head, basically. <laughs> um, and I can't, this is, it really is a fun match. You've got to go out your way to watch this match. Even if you don't watch anything else from the pay-per-view. Uh, the WCW Hardcore Division in 2000 is, again, one of those things that makes WCW very fun to watch in 2000. Oh, definitely. That's what I always say is that even when it's shit, it's usually so cataclysmically shit <laughs> that you can still watch WCW. And like stuff like this isn't shit, it's funny. But it's there's always a fun experience, whether you're laughing at it intentionally or not. You can usually have fun with WCW in this period. I couldn't and, at the time. I was just used to get grumpy about loads of it, but like 20 years later, I can. And at least, you know, with this kind of match, you get the feeling that they, they just fucking hate each other and want to break each other. Like it didn't. And, and also as well, the title is still important, even though, you know, it's a, I wouldn't necessarily call it a full on comedy match. I would call Medusa in Oklahoma a comedy match. This is just 
like you say, just fat lads bringing each other. Like it's just, but in a fun way. In a, in a fun way, yeah. That's the thing. It's you can have fun without trying to be comedy. And you know, I think WWE could certainly learn <laughs> many lessons from that these days. So, what does Mason have to say about this uh, piece of wonderful television? That was fun. Just needs a bit more bumble. Again, Mason hitting the nail on the head uh, with that. So we move on. <laughs> we move on to a bunkhouse brawl, which is match number two for Billy the Heartthrob Kidman mm-hmm. versus Perry Saturn. Who can I say? Perry Saturn had like the perfect wrestling physique at this point. I thought he looked amazing. Yeah, he did. He did. And as the year goes on as well, we'll you know get more and more upset about how not very well used Perry Saturn is uh, compared yeah. to, I mean, something happened here uh, on top of everything else. I'm guessing that just made Perry Saturn just continually disgusted with WCW, but he's used probably better here than he was for the rest of 2000 after the first like, month or two. I think the same and, for me. And for well. me, for me, match of the night. It is a really good match, I thought. Again, it's what, there's loads of people say, this is like, oh, it's the worst pay-per-view I've ever seen. I think, firstly, you probably haven't seen it. Secondly, you definitely haven't seen Super Brawl 2000, if you think that. <laughs> it's just like, there, there is actually, people will focus on Malenko getting confused and the Oklahoma bullshit. But then you get stuff like this, that is actually just good. As much as Heenan tries to make it not good, this is the awkward line match. All right, okay. Well, and and just my cat is, uh, this is Rocco making his uh, his uh, debut on the show. He wants fed, so I'm just going to give him some little duck treats. Um, Can you just give him cat treats? <laughs> Eat them, then fuck off. Right, okay. So, uh, Billy Kidman against Perry Sant- Now, when, you know, talking about the whole, like, sort of uh, very not subtle attempts to try and make my heart rub uh, during this, because uh, Kidman... Assume getting... you're talking about Kidman, not sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kidman's getting beat up during this, and then all of a sudden he just rips his top off while on the floor. And I don't think it gets the reaction just, like, that, that we're maybe... Just lie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, exp- uh, you know, exposes his uh, not exactly, you know, defined body but again you know girls like doesn't help when he's next to how jacked saturn looks as well saturn looks like he could kill you uh but yeah kidman uh saturn for me um it didn't need to be a bunkhouse brawl (laughs) i think i think it's effective later though like you know i complained about how there's various rules get broken in other matches that should make it a dq like they have a proper wrestling match for ages and then you get stuff later like Kidman getting belly to belly suplexed over the top rope through the table, which is quite terrifying when his head bounces off the apron. Oh, like. yeah. Apron, apron. Yeah, they did not. I, I know. I'm, I'm glad it got brought up on the replay, but I don't think they made nearly a big enough deal of that. I think they could have really pushed that because that looked, that looked worrying. It looked like he could have died there. Like that could have snapped his neck. Yeah. Um, but the, again. Favorite match of the night, uh, and you know it's a pr- actually a pretty packed card with lots of like really big names as well. It's there's not a lot of story to it. It's just a good match that the commentary's going out of its way to ruin. <laughs> well, yeah, as well the, the fact that I mean the, the because the Billy Kim and Dean Malenko match is such a non-starter. Um, I, I the crowd it, got behind that though, as, which is just indicative yeah. of what two thousand was like the guy they wanted to win won straight away, and they're like, ha-ha, fuck you, bad guy. 
And but I think it uh, takes away any potential because for all we know, they might have played some kind of like Kidman injury to make him more of an underdog throughout the night, or you know, it, I think it takes any attempt at real uh, sympathy and support away from him. Because uh, I, I just yeah. don't think he captures it anymore throughout the rest of the night. He gets good reactions and everything, but this isn't Red Heart of King of the Ring 93. You know, even though yeah, you can tell that they're really putting a lot of stock in Kidman at this point. And, you know, they again, they know the right people to put on, they know the right people to put out there on a pay-per-view and showcase uh, right until the end. And again, another thing that they don't get enough credit for, especially in 2000 and or one. Oh, I would definitely agree with that. Uh, so yeah, um, match of the night for me. Where does it rank for you? I think the Vampiro one's my match of the night, but this was brilliant as well. Mm-hmm. And then where does it rate for Mason? <laughs> <laughs> Mason just said, Hilda, are you doing all these matches? <laughs> oh, he's very caring. Um, at least he didn't pick up on Heenan. Say, <laughs> like at the start, when Saturn's coming out, and Heenan goes, Maybe he's dumber than we think. Maybe he's smarter than we. I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> it's just like an awkward silence. And then, like, Shivani and uh, Tene start trying to save it. And Heenan just starts rambling something about cows and that. So his last line can be, oh, I wish we had a Brahma bull. Like, a Brahma bull, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Heenan is out of it here. Um, and- Nelly ruins the segment afterwards as well. Oh, please. Go into it. The segment afterwards I thought was class, where um, Stevie Ray has gone back to the hood. Yeah. And he's like going around meeting everybody that they used to know. And he's basically saying, like, Booker's gone soft. And he's like, they'd been heading towards a breakup since Midnight had got involved. And Stevie yeah. wasn't happy having her there and thought that was the way that Booker had gone soft and had forgotten his roots. Mm-hmm. And then, like, <laughs> when Tony Schiavone just starts introducing this, Bobby Heenan just goes, You know, I can talk. I know you can, but you're just talking shite. Yeah, they're ignoring him for a reason, I think, at this point. Uh, And it's not like he would have had anything. This is the thing. They would do that in WWF where Monsoon would talk and then Heenan would get his chance to talk, but they'd cut to the break and stuff like that. But this was not that. This was them just definitely ignoring Bobby Heenan because I think they were worried about what he was going to say. I would have been worried like... So the and the one thing I would say about this when you know Stevie Ray's meeting people on the street, that is the one vignette of the entire thing where it should be on a handheld camera and it should be acknowledged. It shouldn't be mm. this massive camera crew because it would not suit. Um, and it's entirely what we would do now. Have this oh, camera crew not be acknowledged. Pure um, HD as well. Yeah. And it comes it does come across really well. Well, I'm, I'm really surprised that this is their first match, though. And I think they could have made a bigger deal of it. I, th- I think, I think that- they could as well, and I wouldn't have ended it the way they did either. <laughs> well, like, Booker, Booker T comes out uh, wearing one of Jacqueline's old uh, gear. Um, he does like, doesn't he? <laughs> that's not a flattering look for him. Uh, Stevie Ray looking hot. Got to say, he's looking hench. Yep. Yeah. That's all I can say. Um, he does look, he looks big and bad, doesn't he? I, I liked him being in the silver, making it so different to Booker being in the traditional red of Harlem Heat as well. Do you think they missed the boat on Stevie Ray? Like, obviously, they, they did the right thing with Booker. I don't know. I agree with you. Like, 
Harlem Heat were a long-term favourite team of mine, and I'd like their big up to be a big their big up their breakup to be a bigger deal. But I guess they're trying to make it a big deal. It's just not very good. Like, if you wondered what Ahmed's been doing since he left WWF, the answer was not a lot. Like, <laughs> he turns up as Big T, and he's definitely had a lot of Big T's. Like he's looking fucking gargantuan, and that he's like tripled in size. He has, and it, and by. And look, I've, I've interviewed Ahmed and hopefully, you know, we may be able to do some more with him in the future, no matter how many bad things have been said against him and stuff like that. I liked Ahmed Johnson. I don't care what anyone says. Like, you know, he's a big part of the time period that I like and, you know, a lot of like great moments. Doesn't matter what he looks like, he speedos, like that aside. Um, <laughs> like, you know, I'm just. Thank God they didn't put him in speedos there. <laughs> Well, the, he, he had still been working out though. It must just be his cardio that wasn't there. Like he wasn't just doing reps with a knife and fork. He still had like <laughs> big arms. Like, well, that's the thing. By '98 in WWF, you know, is because he was off so many times with injuries. Every time he would come back, he would come back just a little bit chunkier. And but it was never at a point where someone probably told him, "Look, you've got to lose the weight." Because he was just, he was still big and muscular. He wasn't Yokozuna. And it wasn't probably, oh, yeah, yeah. it wasn't affecting his health, I'd imagine. But it probably didn't help him in the ring in terms of like his mobility. And so mobility. it's kind of like two, mm-hmm. it's like Triple H in O2 when he come back just as huge as he was ever going to be. And he just could barely move like Steiner later on. Like mm-hmm. he gets so big that you can't do much. And um, Steiner had dropped foot as well, mind to be fair to him. Yeah, no, he did. Uh, so Ahmed, <laughs> Big T, sorry, he comes out and uh, with, uh, that's the thing, if it was anything other than a really tight top, <laughs> like, I don't think you would have noticed. But having someone show up from WWF Telly from two years ago, when a lot of new fans had come on board, I don't think many people knew who this was in the WCW. It didn't help that he looked nothing like he used to. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, he, he sh- do you think he should have come out in some kind of ring gear or anything just to make him slightly more recognisable? Or... I don't think they should have used him when he was in that physical state, to be honest. Signing Ahmed Johnson from like 97, 98, that's a big signing. That's a big star. But signing him two years later when he's like three times his size, I don't know, I would have took longer and tried to get him in better shape, get him in the gym, like doing cardio and that. You know what I mean? Really you, don't, you don't give him a chance sending him out looking like that, especially no. with how good Booker and Stevie look. Well, realistically as well, he would. I think he would have had something to offer with someone like Stevie Ray who could have protected him and, you know, basically carried him through some of those tag matches and have Ahmed... I wouldn't be like clean. to have to carry Ahmed. <laughs> well, having Ahmed be the cleanup hitter and all that kind of thing, I think would have been a role that would have suited him very well. Uh, yeah, not necessarily the singles match because he does the pull of a plunge and he can still do it, and mm-hmm. you know he makes a bit of an impact. But I think just again the crowd are just they don't really know what's going on, and it, and it's the uh, the debut of Harlem Heat two thousand, uh, and it took me a minute to realize who it was. Like, r- did it really? <laughs> I, I couldn't think who that was when he was coming out. Is that the way to debut? Um, and not because of his no. belly or anything, but would you have? Uh, would you have done vignettes? Would you have, like mentioned WWF at this point and say uh, you? The problem terrible? is they're going for the shock feeling, but this, like, this doesn't have the effect of Kevin Nash jumping over a wall and coming and arguing with you because that's Kevin Nash coming straight off a hot run. 
not several years later in much worse shape. <laughs> and the thing is, it's not like they're trying not to acknowledge that he was once Emma Johnson because Tony Giovanni is like, I don't know who that is, but they can't say his name. And they very quickly, uh, Stevie Ray mentions Big T and then Shivani, to his credit, does repeat it to, I guess, try and get it in people's heads. Uh, but how long after Harlem Heat 2000's debut does Clarence Mason uh, show up as the manager? He's there by the next month. And uh, that does not last too long. And like, I don't know what happened to Harlem Heat 2000. I'm assuming... Well, midnight leaves very soon after. Right. She'd been like a great bodybuilder and she'd won stuff and what have you. But like backstage politics were really shitty and she quickly got disenfranchised with wrestling. Not to mention there were a bunch of valets who like didn't bump. They were just dollies and they were getting paid a lot more than midnight when she was like having matches. God, something's never changing WCW. I think Missy Hyatt was being paid more than some of the wrestlers on the card. Uh, during the Jim Hurd era, but uh, so what was uh, Mason's? I hope he has a comment on Ahmed Johnson, me boy. <laughs> he does. I just want to say first, I found it hilarious when Ahmed comes out and he just starts dissing Booker T, and he's like, calling midnight a piece of fish. And he's got so much <laughs> disgust for lean, healthy white meat. Yeah, that, that explains a lot about his current physique. Gets a good but reaction yeah. from the crowd. The crowd are like, ooh. <laughs> 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 I, Mason's note was because bear in mind Mason adores Harlem Heat. Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> he said. He said. I'm sad, Steve. like to fight man more. Mason might have to fight. Um, <laughs> I don't want Mason to beat your power man. <laughs> hey, I've got a man on my side. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's very weird to see. Ahmed Johnson in WCW. There's one of those, you know, when just names are so synonymous with WWF. And to me, that is just as weird as this night where I need to watch where fucking Tito Santana and George Steele show up. Um, I think it's weird as well. Like, it's not a shock. That's not something that the audience are familiar with. It's not something they're interested in. You know what I mean? Imagine if uh, Benoit, Eddie, Malenko, and Saturn had just stuck around. And Benoit would have had to have had a match with Ahmed Johnson at some point. It's just such a cross-section of names at this point. But it does... Do you think this is an indictment... Not an indictment of WCW, but just like a sign that WCW are kind of... Even though they've got a great roster and they do not need Ahmed Johnson there, it's a sign that they're kind of scrambling for names at this point. Uh, I think so, and... I think it's just Russo bringing in people that either he thought would be a big deal, but probably aren't anymore, mm-hmm. or just people that would be allies. You know how much of a political minefield it is. So, like, bring in Ahmed, bring in the Harris twins, that sort of shit. Well, that's not that's nothing new for anyone who ever takes over a company uh, as a book guy. Hogan brought in all these mates, uh, and that was shite as well. Well, no, it was, but like, and, and, you know, George Scott in 89 brought in all these mates and people who drew in the 70s that you still think would draw in 1989. And it's just, it was, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but it's just, it's just what happens. You bring in your friends and you create, you create a comfort level for yourself and uh, they will watch the audience leave. (laughs) I don't think we can blame WCW tanking on Omar Johnson. No, I'm definitely not doing that. I just mean that, that general policy. Ever diminishing returns. If we like interview this isn't me. Bret Hart turning up or something, you know what I mean? 
if we interview him again, though, like that'll be the first question. I never got to ask him about Harlem Heat 2000 stuff. Um, I think you got bored <laughs> of me the four-hour conversation by that point, and you were just like, yep, see you later. And I was like, oh, bugger. Um, <laughs> I, had so, I had so many questions about Harlem Heat 2000, so we move on. <laughs> yeah, we'll get a really brief interview where Sid and Gene seem to be in a storage cupboard for some reason before we move on to Tank Abbott versus Jerry Flynn. Why this, is this on a pay-per-view? This is a very unsid-like promo as well. I can't actually remember the promo. So go on. This is when Sid's been a smiley, excitable baby face, which is kind of odd, but he was very over. Right. Okay. Well, that's the thing I just assumed because Benoit gets such a pop when he wins the belt. But it was, uh, they do acknowledge that they are, him and Benoit kind of getting along, which is like a, a weird thing. And he holds no ill will towards Benoit. And again, this is a sign that they had to scramble for a match. I don't know if Benoit and Sid would have been your match, but I guess to put Benoit over, having kill your biggest you know in stature uh mm-hmm. name i guess but yeah it is it's it's a very sids kind of uh i don't want to kick the shit out of benoit but i might have to like my bloody well after yeah. gene, gene and gene's <laughs> like yep yeah. uh, so it, it is a very you know the master ruler of the world and the shouting all and all that just isn't there it's just a a bit of an odd Sid interview, but also not something that necessarily builds up your title match very well. Oh, it wasn't necessary, much like the match that follows it. <laughs> Jerry Flynn. Now, no, see, that's the thing. We always used to joke that, you know, a very terrible joke that he was no relation to Jerry Lynn. Uh, did any of that, did that ever get mentioned ever? <laughs> no, I don't think so. They just went on his uh, legitimate kickboxer credentials. And Well, that's the thing. Every time I saw him, he just seemed like, boring man because they didn't really give any he wasn't he wasn't like Ernest Miller where he had like personality and they gave a bit of his background and stuff I didn't see enough of Jerry Flynn to know much of him he reminds me of Blackman that kind of character I can see that with like legit uh, fighting background so what what and he, he faces the legendary Tank Abbott um, <laughs> what is the, 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 the potential world champion Tank Abbott who Russo <laughs> On that Battle Royal, he said, because it was going to be one of those ones where almost Rumble-esque, wasn't it? And Tank Abbott was going to come in last. And I staggered entrances. Yeah, and it meant that legitimately, feasibly, Tank Abbott could win the title, which I kind of get, but not Tank Abbott. It's the thing you always get with Russo. is like, I guess that could work, but why? <laughs> yeah, just because it can feasibly work <laughs> doesn't mean that you have to do it. <laughs> I've said that to you loads of times when we're looking at old wrestling. It's just because it's possible doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> Had Tank Abbott been on Friends at this point? When the fuck's Tank Abbott on Friends? When Ross wants to become an MMA fighter to impress his girlfriend. <laughs> the show, I think, had flown. Yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. So then it's like, oh, book you in an MMA fight. And it's against Tank Abbott. And uh... You sure this isn't a plot from Bojack Horseman? There's not a fe- another fever dream or anything, but yeah, no, this is definitely a thing that happened. Uh, Tank Abbott was on Friends. I'm going to say that since it's about training for MMA, this is going to be when Tank was still in UFC. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh- <laughs> they'd, they'd had a really fucking weird build-up to it. You see a little bit of it in the video package where they're like attacking each other and like building sites, and they end up in a fucking jail cell together fighting and that. And this is such cartoony lunacy. Like It's good in a shit way. But it's it's not good. <laughs> that makes sense. When you've got two legitimate fighters, does it need all of that nonsense? Hundred percent not. No. The story should just be kickboxing versus MMA. Make it keep, like it's going to be from some Van Damme type thing. You know what I mean? Should be like blood sport. I don't need that to be like 
all this ridiculous backstage stuff in different places and that. Just be like preparing to fight Bolo Young or something, you know what I mean? Yeah. And 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 WWF are guilty for this with the brawl for all and some of the Shamrock Blackman fights as well, like their lines, their matches and stuff. They were presented as really, really real. And the brawl for all was really, really real. But no one believed it was real because everything else on the show is fake. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always think it's pointless to do something real in a bullshit business. Yeah. It's insane. So, I mean, this, I guess, was an attempt at trying to be real because they kept it short. Um, there's bits that look real. You know, like, there's quite a cool spot where Flynn goes for the cross arm breaker and then, like, Abbott rolls him over to half guard. And, like, I guess it looks right. Like, it looks correct and maybe not real. You know what I mean? Well, there has to be an element of protection somewhere. It's like when Lesnar came back to WWE after his UFC thing, he has to bust people open after a punch. Otherwise, his punches are going to be like, oh, didn't even fucking knock him out. Whereas in UFC, they were, were killing, killing people. people. And, <laughs> and, and it took time for them to get away from that because you have to, I guess, you know, make it more bullshit wrestling eventually. You know what I mean? And people will forget, mm-hmm. especially if you only shows up once a year. Um, but it, I understand why this was one minute and odd, but... Was it needed? <laughs> it wasn't needed. Like this, this could have been on the telly. They'd been building up Tank for ages, where he was like knocking people out in one punch. He even did one on Norman Smiley at one point. But like <laughs> he's just coming out and just flattening people in one punch. I mean, I guess it's really short and it's a change of style that breaks things up. But Mason's note was a pretty much the same as ours. Mm-hmm. Why that was quick. <laughs> It was. And are you surprised by the winner? Like, I mean, they did. I don't believe they really did anything with Jerry Flynn after this. I could it's no wrong. surprise who won it, really, when you've been seeing Tank steamroll people like that. And how quickly did Tank ended up, uh, end up with free count? That's a while, yeah. You wait till you get the Super Brawl. You're talking about protection and about fights. I can't fucking wait until you see the ridiculous travesty the Tank Abbotton in the next pay-per-view. <laughs> I'm very excited. That's the thing with Tank Abbott. He's kind of, uh, he reminded me very much, not just looks wise, but facials, expressions, how he acted like Jim Neidhart. Um, I can definitely see that. Like UFC Neidhart. UFC Neidhart, because he would break into a big grin out of nowhere and then he'd be completely serious and then he'd be completely silly. And uh, yeah, it's an odd signing but i get it i mean if you know wf's gonna have shamrock and severin and people like that you know why not tap into that audience unpopular opinion but i fucking loved when he was with three count it was hilarious it it was brilliant it was brilliant um another unpopular opinion he had a classic superstars action figure and uh everyone was like he does not deserve an action figure i'm like no he does he definitely does there's definitely an audience for that if it was now though you should have had an interchangeable head one grinning smiley head and one you know just standard uh serious head but uh (laughs) you could do it interchangeable with a pole then you've got the pole in and one has the ufc jacket on or you can change it to be the platinum record for three count (laughs) (laughs) yeah the tank abbott three count uh, partnership very very underrated and a lot of fun. Um, it was a lot of fun. So then we move on to a storyline that I kind of knew about back in the day, uh, but I didn't know. I knew it had happened, but uh, I didn't realize to the extent of which it happened. And to be honest, how fucking entertaining it was. Uh, this we... is one I don't get why people shit on. I thought this angle was fucking great. Yeah, 
Yeah, and just from the, this is just me watching the video, the promo video, but it's the best build-up video of the night because it it just plainly like just puts out there what the storyline is. And it's uh, one of the only big matches and big stories they had going that they didn't need to change as well. Yeah. Uh, so this is Buff Bagwell versus Diamond Dallas Page in a last man standing match. I don't know if that was again needed. Um, it feels like something that you could have done later on. I don't know if they did have more matches later on. Um, they have a one on like the Nitro almost immediately after, and then they just drop it because this feels like a storyline that could have carried on for a long time. I was pissed off that this got dropped. Right, because it's, it's, it's just, a very Russo story. It is, and Bagwell is so good in this role. Um, and DDP like plays it quite straight as well. And uh, and Kimberly's fucking amazing. She's so she hot. has such a good spot on the nitro before this. Uh-huh. She like has a promo with Mean Jean where she's sat in a backstage room and he's like interviewing her. It's almost like she's getting Monica Lewinsky or something, and she's giving <laughs> really cagey responses, not going either way. Mm-hmm. And she just acts really well, and she just keeps skirting around the issue of trying to clarify where she's at with Buff and she just answers everything like a politician, like changing the question and that. It's a really good segment. There's another mint segment as well where Bagwell and DDP have to promo each other and they've got five minutes where they're not allowed to touch each other. Right. You just have to promo for it and it's fucking good. You get loads of like, oh no, he didn't. <laughs> kind of like shit going on there. I was going to say, this is very Springer, but in it, the stuff that they did that was Springer esque in 98, 99, 2000, I would I wouldn't get rid of any of it because it probably drew in an audience that they wouldn't have gotten. Uh like the Stephanie McMahon test. Uh I love shit like that as well. Yeah. Like some of it, that remember, it really for a woman. Well, the Steph test thing really boosted the female audience for WWF, as I'm sure storylines like this probably did for WCW. Um, well, we're a long way away from it, but the David Flair wedding angle with Ric Flair and all that, and like, I watched that with Jess, and she still really enjoyed it. Now, like, <laughs> it, 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 sometimes stuff that some of the reviewers and writers and quote unquote experts mm-hmm. are kicking off about, it's like maybe it's not fucking aimed at you. Like, yeah. not everything's about you. Some of these angles are for a female audience. Fuck off. Well, that, that's like any. Uh... I can't remember which actor it was, but like a franchise, like say Star Wars or something, maybe this this one isn't for you because they were all made for kids and you are not a fucking kid anymore, mate. Like, yeah, totally. I get pissed off at nerds about that sort of thing all the yeah. time. There's nothing wrong with a good bit of trash in wrestling. And, you know, that an early example of that is like world class with uh, David Von Erich and Baby Doll and all that kind of stuff and uh, Sunshine. Uh, mm-hmm. And Missy Hyatt with Eddie Gilbert and all that kind of stuff. When and JCP, when Baby Doll gets stole from Tully by Dusty Rhodes, <laughs> that stuff's fucking great. And that night, some of it is for the ladies. It's not for us. Um, this is just such the right level of trash and drama. And oh no, he didn't. And you know, and sex appeal because Kimberly looks fucking hot. Bagwell's peak, like buff. He's no. You know, handsome stranger Bagwell at this point. No, but even DDP's kind of handsome in a sleazy way at this point, isn't he? He is. And Dallas picked, he's like, Yeah, you appeal to the women, but you also appeal to the appeal men. Appeal to the guys. <laughs> <laughs> 
The girls all love him, but so do the guys. That's the <laughs> WCW is very much turning into my company in 2000. You've got Big T, you've got Buff. <laughs> Get all the fucking fat dads. Did, did you see Buff ate my stuff as a sign one of the women has in the crowd at this point? Oh, that's a Bagwell line on the, the video as well. It's like, I want to put all my stuff all over Kimberly. <laughs> yep. Oh, and, and, so... and then DDP tells him he's like, but buff stuff's just not enough. <laughs> so good. It really is. Um, and you know what? That is to me, it's scripted, but in the best sense because it's just it's short, it's trash talky. It's the, the, that's why just and again, I know I'm going off a tangent, but like the rock and DX, they got it right because it was trash talk and you got the instant reactions from the crowd and mm-hmm. But you also backed it up with great matches as well. And you know what? This is a very fucking good match. It is. I love that the start, like a proper brawl, like it should be a brawl. Like this guy is potentially fucking your wife. Don't start with a collar elbow tiger. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, but they go full brawl like an old Corcoran Hall match where they're like going up in the bleachers and all that. And it's just yeah. good fun. It's it's good. It's messy. There's no chain wrestling or anything that I would normally like. But it's because it doesn't fit. Just smash his face in, you know what I mean? Yeah, and and it it could potentially be hard to have a match like this when you've already had a hardcore match and stuff. But it just shows you again when you've got people that know what they're doing, they can. And if there's a good enough storyline behind it, you, the psychology can even if some of the spots are the same with like weapons or whatever, it can mean different things. Um, it's not funny for one thing. Keep it's the hardcore not, matches funny in that division, and then this is a fight. Yeah, and 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 you know it, it's again a sign of the time that you know there's a lot of being hit over the head with stuff, but the crowd just aren't tired of it at this point. Whereas mm-hmm. if by like say 2002, even WWF showed that they had to get rid of the hardcore belt because we would seen everything Passé. by mm-hmm. this point. Um, but the, again, when you've got a match with a an issue, it does add a level of drama to it that. You know, you, you almost forget about the four-minute hardcore match uh, because, and and also the fact that this is a last man standing match, which does add a, a more element of drama to it as well. Mm-hmm. I would have probably kept it as a no DQ match, and I'll get to why when we talk about the finish mm-hmm. because the finish is a bit odd. I do like seeing them go around the place, like you know when they go to the chat room. I liked, you know, where uh, there's like <laughs> he gets fucking hit with a keyboard and the keys explode everywhere and like. I think Mike Tanay is like, it looks like they just unplugged the internet, which I thought was quite good. But like Bagwell jumping off the railings and elbow dropping them through the table. It's the best kind of messy. Yeah, what a plug for the website as well. Though. Just like brilliantly done. Um, They knew how to put the internet front and center. I love that they had it in the arena. Me too. Like, it, it's it like just... in a commentary table position. Yeah, and again, it's a sign of the you know the early two thousands where the dot com industry and everything. Why not put it out front? Like, I never understood why WF had it backstage. Like, they should you know should have made a far bigger deal of it than they did. Um, mm. And WCW did a really good job of uh, pushing that online presence. I would say. Well, they really did. I mean, sometimes to their like downfall because Russo was writing for the internet fans <laughs> so well, where some of the stuffs like ahead of its time but there's it's not like everyone's on twitter and going on loads of websites like it was a very specific small part of the audience that was doing that then so i guess that's the downfall but i don't want to get negative like there's a lot of good stuff in this the commentary's mint 
Yeah, they, they really get into it. And I think Heenan's probably having a bit more fun with this because I think he this is kind of more up his alley in terms of a hardcore match or a gimmick match. Yeah, because it is. It's just like a gimmick match and a feud rather than like a hardcore division. Do you hear Shivani wanting to sell DDP's necklace on eBay? What a little Raji. <laughs> when it gets like ripped off when they're at the table, he picks it up and says he's selling it online. It's like, fucking hell, man. Autograph it first. <laughs> <laughs> After Buff kicks DDP in the dick, Tanea says Buff's trying to clear the cobwebs. And I was like, is he trying to say that Buff's doing Kimberly so much? The DDP gets so little action that he's got cobwebs on his belt. <laughs> like, what exactly are you insinuating by that? <laughs> um. So if if you were Kimberly, who would you go for? Like, you know, <laughs> DDP, obviously. DDP is going to your type. So I, I kind of like the 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 sort of you know the fact that both definitely comes across like not an alpha male, um, <laughs> or an American male. On American Mail, uh, there's something Although, <laughs> definitely bitch-like about him in like the best possible gay sense of the word. There is. When he goes for that Vader bomb in the corner, fuck me, he gets some height on it. And just saying American Mail's there, <laughs> talking about it, I wish he'd renamed that in a strippery way. So like he did the Vader bomb, but called it like the magic mic drop or the flipping <laughs> Dale or something like that. Ah. <laughs> Do you feel like he was getting ribbed though? Because like DDP's been saying on Nitro all the time that he's got a tiny cock. And then he rivals Brian Nobbs for having the fucking smallest bat on you've ever seen. And he gets it to attack Pedro. It's like, it looks like it came out of a cracker. <laughs> Jess, loving this, I'm guessing. Uh, like mm-hmm. you say, but uh, what, what does Mason, uh, what's Mason have to say? And what, and what is, because you particularly like the finish of this. Yeah, uh, the finish was the only bit where it's like, it's not the fault of either wrestler, but like they cut away from it and you can't see why you stayed down. It seemed sudden. And I, it was one of those things where I did kind of like, I was maybe focusing on something else just for a couple of seconds and then the match seemed to end. It didn't have the epic end that it should have for me. Yeah. It's cause they're not sure what to do when Kimberly's coming out. She looks beautiful in that like Audrey Hepburn style dress and that. But when they're not sure whether to focus between her and the match itself, you kind of miss the finish. And I was so into the match. I was like, oh, fuck. N- now it's done. I, d- I don't get why people criticize the end in the And it's a popular criticism that DDP shouldn't have beat Bagwell down after Bagwell won. But like, why the fuck wouldn't you? Would you be like, oh, well, I lost this wrestling match. So I guess you can carry on booking me wife then. Like, <laughs> you wouldn't. You'd kick the fuck out of him. You'd yeah, just because the, yeah, the match ends. <laughs> Like you're having the match because it's a legal way to get someone in the ring and braid them. Um, but then when you've got them in the ring, it's just, yeah. You wouldn't just stop, would you? No. Well, that's the thing I never really liked about heel or face turns. It's like, yeah, you fucked me, dog. Uh, you know what I mean? But now we're tag team partners and all is forgiven. Um, yeah, I know. Like, no, no, I'm, I'm never going to forgive you for what you did. You know, <laughs> I'd be like that as well. It would be proper hard to, get, to turn face to me because I'd be like, fuck you forever. So... And I'm anxiously awaiting this. Mason's uh, verdict of the match or comments. <laughs> Mason's comment was just, uh, Why did that match just stop? <laughs> yep. Well, I mean, that could be said about, uh, you know, the first match as well. Aye. <laughs> true. But his his comment was a lot funnier than we could come up with for that. <laughs> that is true. It's one of those pay-per-views that, there's, God, there's so many. I mean, there's uh, there's 12 matches and it's one of those pay-per-views where you forget 
what has happened on like the first and second match by you the time you get do. to like match nine and ten. They fit fucking out. Kidman has three. <laughs> That's true. And uh, speaking of that, he is up next uh, against mystery opponent, who turns out to be the Wall before he is Sergeant Earwall and before he is Malice. And to be honest, I thought. It was a slightly underwhelming mystery opponent to appear. I don't know if it was a mystery because they literally didn't fucking know who they'd be able to get. Mm. But like, uh, this was this was a hell in a cell that's just been given a soft core pawn title like caged heat, and then like soft core pawn, you don't get any of the good stuff. So it's just like, mm. you know, it's got an impressive finish where Wall catches Kidman and choke slams him out of the sky. But the match itself's. Not really special because I felt preconditioned by Hell in a Cell that this should be violent as shit. Which is crazy as well because WCW had the bigger cages with the outside the ring bit long before Hell in a Cell. And oh, I either did, but this was a Hell in a Cell match though, wasn't it? It was. It and and by 2000 WWF, I mean, the Hell in a Cell, it was that time period where it was fourth match on the card and you forgot about it by the main event. Uh, it did very much. I mean, Kennel from Hell had just happened. Um, <laughs> it's a lot better than Kennel from Hell. No dogs <laughs> shite or fucked each other during this match. And the thing is, like, they tease the fact that they could, you know, like swing off the inside of the roof of the cage and all that kind of stuff. And not enough happens for kids. You thought the wall was going to swing off the roof of the cage? Well, no. <laughs> well, no, obviously. Uh, you know, Billy Kidman, but um, who would you have had feasibly be Kidman's opponent for this? Feasibly. I don't even know what constitutes as feasible in this vortex of confusion. What is Luger at this point? Uh, he's feuding with Sting. Where's Sting? <laughs> Good fucking question. Um, It just... It was very when, especially. Can you when, imagine though? Why would Sting be teamed with the Revolution? You've got to make sense for why they're teamed with the Revolution. I guess Eddie Guerrero. Well, I was going to say, or a random heel turn like it's Conan, even though he was beat down at the start. And like, wait, what the fuck? But no, that's just me thinking. Like Russo. Well, did the four of them the legitimately leave that night? Because Eddie's not on the pay per view, and I'm that's leave during the, like just before Nitro starts the next day. Right, okay. And is there a particular reason why Eddie's not on this pay-per-view? Or is it just like everyone else who isn't on this pay-per-view? Just... I think it's just that he's just not on it. Like, why the fuck wouldn't you have Ray and Hoovy on it? Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, and the beat Kidman as well. And to me, that felt realistic, but it's like, oh, God, like, at least have a bit of, like, I don't know, good feeling. If the Malenko match had worked better and he'd been really battered, then the wall coming out would have been like, you don't have a fucking chance because you're like injured and you're about the size of one of his shoes <laughs> and he's just going to choke slam you all the way like to Australia straight <laughs> through the floor. But like, in reality, there's not a chance Billy Kidman would beat the wall anyway. Like they're locked in in that cell and the wall's fucking huge. Like he looks if, like if you got the guy out of some 41 and turned him into a bouncer, like there's no way you're going to beat him. Well, again, this did not necessarily need to be basically a Hell in the Cell match, and it was five minutes long. Imagine bringing that entire structure for a five-minute match. With fuck-all violence to it. Yeah. As Mason said as well, he's very confused by the character, because, of course, he's not with Berlin anymore. Uh. He's just called the wall. And <laughs> Mason said, He's not a wall. 
He's an office boy. <laughs> not a shark. Not a fish. <laughs> Basically, yeah. I. Yeah. Um. So we move on to a very fun story. I mean, the fact I love any pit view that wants to feature Terry Funk prominently. Um. I love seeing him brand Kevin Nash in the build-up to this as well. That was great. I've never seen that before. Um, yeah, Funk is just top-notch here. Like, he's still just crazy old man Terry Funk. Like, he hadn't lost anything at this point. Um, he's got the sympathy so great as well. He does. I don't know. How did he end up as commissioner? Uh, he was just named as the commissioner in, like, the first Nitro of the year or something. I- I'm trying to remember who the other commissioner was who was gone before it. But there's a Nitro where they're teasing, like, who will be the mystery commissioner and a limo turns up and it's Terry Funk and you would never see that coming. Funk's WCW run was just magical because it's just so fucking mental. Um, I loved it, me. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> it really was. Uh, <laughs> and and it took a lot to... Um, and, and there is this... Because uh, you mentioned about uh, Funk's contract as well coming out of WWF. And I think it's worth bringing up because uh, with Funk being in WCW at this point. That is true, actually. Funk's contract with WWF, I think it had like rolled over. There was some kind of clause in it that he didn't know was there. Mm. And he hadn't been used for ages and he'd gone to WCW. And WWE realized he was meant to be under contract with them. And out of respect to him being Terry Funk, they just let him go anyway. And I'm, that's really good of them, I thought. It was, and his last match was July 98 in WWF, and he said on camera, whether this was planned or not, which, I mean, it, it wouldn't shock me for Terry Funk to kind of, not in a selfish way, go into business for himself, but just, you know, um, he said last match for six months, and he never came back. Well, he, did, <laughs> he, he did in 2006. This is the my horse was sick. <laughs> um, is this the closest to him, keeping good on one of his hundreds of retirement <laughs> angles he's had. Uh, so, yeah, he shows up at uh, WCW as commissioner. And I remember one terrible angle where he, uh, Brett comes out with bruises all over his face and Funk throws a bot- bucket of water over his face, which is meant to dissolve the makeup, but it doesn't, and no one really gets what's going on. And uh, that's just something I remember from the old Channel 5 shows. They'd had a weird angle like that as well, where they were teasing that Brett was leaving the NWO and he was sick of their behavior and that. And then they took him backstage and shaved him, but you could never see his face. And then like the old age outlaws led by Terry Funk had come and found the pile of hair and they're like, no, and they're looking for him. And then surprise, Brett still has all of his hair and he's still a dick. Uh, um, I think when Russo was still there, you'll be shocked to know. (laughs) I think Nash fucking probably loved working with Terry Funk. Like, I would expect so. Just he said thank you to him after he pinned him. Did he? That's amazing. Like Funk, for me, Nash. You know, because was he booking at this point? And this is before he was booking, wasn't it? Well, this is as he starts booking because he was going to be booked to become the commissioner and the champion initially, and he was like, "Whoa, that'll get me heat." <laughs> you can tell he's just kind of doing things that he would definitely enjoy that aren't necessarily, you know. Like big money matches or whatever. Um, Aye. But a, a good, you know... This was mint, though, the fucking story to this. and I love this. This was Southerners out. Well, this is when, like, the commissionership back then actually meant something as well. So when whoever took over, there was a real change in dynamics. In and the, the threat well. had been that the NWO will legitimately take over. Yeah. Um, 
because that, that is one thing about NWO 2000, uh, not having seen too much of it, is that, like, fuck me, NWO again. But it did seem like that it had a fresh coat of paint to it. To, to give Russo credit here, he'd spent a while making the NWO into horrible heels, not cool heels. So he's, like, making them more vicious, you know, like when they took Daphne and all that. And it's, like, some quite risque-looking stuff when, like, Jarrett's choking her and dragging her away and that. He's like, oh, fucking hell. But Nash kind of undoes a lot of that here when he comes out and does a, basically a babyface entrance to the Wolfpack music and gets fucking loads of cheers. I don't know why he'd been in a shower just before the match, so he was all wet and that. It's not like he's going to work up a sweat. <laughs> um, one thing I love uh, when Terry Funk's outside the ring, he's like, if you can make it in, you can stay as commissioner. And he gets on the, the mic. Ring. Yeah. <laughs> And he's like, I'm fucking lying because I'm a cunt. Um, I love that as well. He's like, nah, you thought I was telling the truth. <laughs> um, so, yeah, very such a weird clash of names in this match. But uh, I'm, it's one of those things that I'm just, I'm so glad it happened because, again, I really wish that Terry Funk would have, you know, had a chance to come into WWF during the invasion and been used very well as kind of like that old, you know, uh, Southern all, hero, all southern hero, and and an underdog just because of his age. But he was he's the only person that can think. Of. He's kind of like Willie Nelson when Bill Hicks says, "Look, I hate celebrities advertising anything, but Willie Nelson, I'll let him off because he's." Ah, you know what you mean. So it's of the like IRS. Well, yeah, and because of the age thing, like he Terry Funk was the only one that never got it in the neck about you know when WWF mocking WCW's wrestlers for the age. Terry Funk was coming out there older than all of them. And they never once said anything about his age. Barely even the heels said anything about his age. Um, he just... Because he uses it for sympathy, always? He, he does, but also it, the age just really doesn't get mentioned. I mean, it does, but it kind of gets brushed over, just middle-aged and crazy. But never, like, past his prime or anything like that, or just... He's just... He, it doesn't need to, though. It's like... Yeah. How much do you wince when you see like heroic old Gadji in peril as he gets powerbombed to a fucking table and like knocks out everybody's headsets and all that? You're like, no, it's like watching an old family member get murdered. <laughs> you see Terry when Fun- he does the upside down tumble out of the ring, he looks so helpless. It's amazing. And then he comes up having bladed and he's bloody as shit. Yeah, Terry Funk could very much like Jerry Lawler could take stuntman bumps. Like they didn't look like wrestling bumps, they just looked like you he fell down hard. I like, ah, like the power bomb on the fucking chairs. Oh, I felt awful that he took that. Like he shouldn't. I mean, he can, and he's amazing, and he probably got up and had a beer right after it with Nash. Uh, but I wish Nash would have taken a bit, a bit of care of him. Ah, you know, like, but I can't imagine. Like if Terry Funk tells you, you turn in the chairs on. He's taking that bump. You fucking turn them around and and give him the bump. <laughs> like he was in ECW. That that is very true. Yeah, anything less, I'm sure Funk would have slapped the shit out of Nash backstage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that could have got fucking heated afterwards. We go on to our main. Well, actually, Nash and Funk. If I, if I can give, if I can give you Mason's uh, verdict on Nash and Funk. Yeah, Nash and Funk. That sounds. I don't even know what that sounds like. <laughs> um, he was very invested in this match emotionally and was quite upset at the end when Terry lost. Mm-hmm. And his note was. <laughs> he sounds more smart than he's letting on. Because <laughs> <laughs> he fucking listens to me all the time, doesn't he? 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think there's ever been a Terry Funk match where I haven't wished he won. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's why ECW got us so right. Um, so we move on to the main event, Chris Benoit yeah. versus Sid for the WCW sh- World Heavyweight Championship. Strange warm-up where they're like, I don't know if they're trying to give it a big fight feel, but I didn't really need to see Chris Benoit doing Hindu squats backstage and Sid Vicious talking to a shelf. <laughs> yeah. It, what else? I mean, okay, they didn't have to do that necessarily. but um, The next but, segment was great, though. Go on. Well, you get on being interviewed because, of course, he's yeah. part of the old age outlaws and they've just lost control because Terry's just lost and he's fucking devastated. Hmm. And he's got to go out and referee this match. And I really liked him giving him the chance to sell his reaction to the match before, before he then has to go out and do his job, which makes the finish make more sense. That's explained on the Monday. On when on says something because he puts so much emotion into what he says, you you do believe it. And if on's disgusted or angry or upset or find something funny. Or you know what I mean? Like you just it's it's kind of that Gordon Soley or Lance Russell thing that you respect them so much that you know you kind of buy into their opinion. I wish they had people like that in WWE now. Um where there's God so I. there's so you can't well, script that though. You can't script that. No, you that. can't. But like they're so well respected that you know they've got such a, a reputation that nothing can be done. I mean, they wouldn't even dare to attempt to fuck around with someone's reputation like that. Um, mm. And AEW has those names. WWE does not have those names, even though they very much could, but they'd never seem to want to, you know, rely on that kind of thing. They just bring legends back for comedy spots, which does me fucking head in. Um, um, yeah, I'm not about that. Like, I loved Arn holding the belt. Um, it's just one of those, oh, what could have been? Um <laughs> And, and the thing is, though, as well, I, you can see on holding the belt. He knows how fucking important that belt is because he protected it for years. For, for so long. So, yeah. you know, and there's always a bit of when you see like a guest referee holding a belt, they kind of look at it and go, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you, you can, yeah, I, I love the subtlety of that. I also love that on and Sid are in the ring together. And when on's given the instructions, he does not look at Sid. Don't scissor me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, it's a, again, it's an odd match. It's kind of like, you know, Funk and uh, Nash. I'm, I'm really glad that it wasn't like Sid and Nash. Uh, but Funk and Benoit could have... Shite. Funk and Benoit could have been fucking great in its own way. I, to be honest, I think they got them the right way around, though. Mm-hmm. I like the sympathy that Funk could get. And I really like this Benoit and Sid match. It is... Definitely one of Sid's better matches. Uh, and it's probably not one of Benoit's better matches, but it's definitely one of Sid's better matches. Uh, good storytelling in it, though, the where they get over the size discrepancies. And yeah, also, it, just because I'm a nerd, like the themes at the start got me excited. <laughs> yeah. Um, just to hear in horseman music in a main event in the year 2000. That's just so fun. The only thing that marred it was seeing a sign in the crowd that said Sid is a millennium clown spelt wrong because he's been a millennium man. I was like, no, cut away. I don't need to see that. <laughs> it's really weird. And they do it on the network. And it's the only example I can think where this is a good thing. Sid's music, which is on some of the events at the time, was this proper slow, like 
boom, boom, boom on the bass, and then like dun, 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 like metal riff. And it was like proper sinister and intimidating. For some reason, at random times, it's overdubbed with this like crazy Rocky Four song, which to be honest is better than his real theme. It's like the only <laughs> thing that gets dubbed on the network where the redubbed song is better. It's like I've only been discovering it while I've been watching these things on the network, but it's becoming like one of my favorite themes I've ever heard. But I just don't know why they're doing it. Like they clearly have the rights to his music because it's on other ones, unless they've just never watched them to change it. There's possibly that. I mean, like with the an ex, uh, example of that is the the Rick Rude WWF music that for some reason the night that Harvey Whitman comes out as Rick Rude because Rick had jumped ship, they have his music, the the classic WWF theme, and either they've just forgotten to do, uh, dub it over, or maybe it's the context of it. I I don't know. I mean, it just seems so rc and so you know um unnecessary why they felt why they feel the need to dub over music when they really don't have to just because they're worried that they might get some but you, you that's vince isn't it though he doesn't want to fucking pay for music ever uh if you can help this so nah. and it and it uh, makes so, so it makes some events unwatchable unless you have like the video of the tag classic it's very true um so, anyway take us through the match I really like the intro. You get Buffer's big fight intro, but you also have an Arn Anderson speaking on the mic. I always think if the referee's a good talker, having them talk at the start of your main event gives an extra big fight feel. And when he's talking them both through, because he's got history with both, you know, one was a horseman. Well, they're both horsemen, but one of them stabbed him. You know what I mean? Like the, the history there, you, when you know it, it makes it even better for you. But if you don't, it still feels really important. Do you think they should have capitalised? I mean, did they capitalise on that? I mean, they wouldn't have had time, I guess. No, they didn't. Like, that with some, you know, talk about the scissors and everything, and that on could turn one way or the other. Like, that that would have added an extra level of drama. Having him as the ref does add gravitas to it, but... Again, yeah, there's a lot the, fucking going on though, didn't there? That's one of the... Yeah, it's one of those things that, like, again, on didn't necessarily need to be the ref, but... um. I guess you know you have to have someone of magnitude be a ref for a match that important. So, and it I mean, it doesn't hurt it certainly. Oh, definitely not. Uh, I think the story in the match is great. Ben was predominantly in charge, and he's always trying to bring Sid down as you would because he's massive. You know, there's a the bit where he's like drop kicking the steps into Sid's knee, and he's like working the leg when he gets him down. I mean, if only someone had told him that Johnny Ace knew the real way to bring Sid down by the leg just <laughs> have him jump off the fucking top rope to do a big boot because fuck Johnny Ace but yeah. uh, I, I, I digress the, the ebb and flow of the match is really good like Benoit's always trying to bring him down and get him to that level and then Sid's always like overpowering him and getting back to it and I just really enjoyed that but I did think that all of the wrestlers coming out to try and watch from the top to make it seem more important was just stupid yeah, it, there were far more important matches for the title in WCW's history recently that <laughs> all the yeah. wrestlers did not come like out on for. Nitro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also there's hilarious thing happens there because the Flair comes out where he's got like a Virginia shirt on or something, but he's wearing a jacket over it, so it just says Virgin. But yeah, I mean, I really enjoy the match. I, I thought it was great. You get the foreshadowing where Sid nearly loses. No, sorry, Benoit nearly loses, but he's got his foot under the rope. Yeah. So then they're like, oh, no, and that gives them the kind of foreshadowing for the finish that they need to then use on Nitro as well. But then, like, 
It's so Sid's hit that monstrous looking choke slam. Benoit gets his foot under the rope and then slides Sid over for the crossface. And I I really liked how fast Sid tapped out. He made the crossface look like a proper move. Uh, you know, there's nothing I hate more than people being in holds for ages and ages when you think either that tendon's torn or you're dead. Yeah. No, the uh, Sid does a does a great job. And the what I like about like matches like this, it does because in a lot of other circumstances, you would think, ah, oh, Sid's not gonna win this, they're not gonna make him champion, but obviously because he had been champion, uh, and it seemed unlikely, I would say, even during this point, that Benoit would have won a world title in a major company. Um to me, the only just... downside is the crowd don't really get into that. I think the crowd wanted Sid to win it. Well, okay, uh, that's the thing. Do you think Benoit? Oh, I'm, I'm probably going to get killed for this, but like Benoit, in the right circumstance, like he's amazing, he's popular, etc. But like, not necessarily world championship material for a company like that where you can, I've, like, market them and, and do interviews and have people get behind them. Like, I don't... Unless he's having the types of matches that you would eventually have of, like, Angle and stuff like that, I just... I, I don't know. Like, as WWE showed, they didn't have much faith in Benoit post the title win. And I just mm. don't think he was necessarily... It would be like having Dynamite Kid. I mean, you know, obviously the comparisons and everything, but... To be a champion of a company like that, I feel like you have to have the charisma that Benoit. He has that Doesn't silent. Really have. Yeah, he has the silent charisma, but like I just, I don't think he's ever going to be a long-term champion of a company. To give credit to Benoit, I think the biggest issue was you get positioned as a mid-carder for like six years, and then you're in a main event. The crowd are already used to seeing Sid as a main event guy, he'd like feuded with Goldberg as a heel, he's turned face. He was already meant to be in the match. Yeah. Like it was going to be him and Bret Hart. And then Ben was the substitute. Also, I don't think people would have really seen it coming. So there's an element of surprise stops there being a big impact at the end. But it, it's still a great match and a great moment seeing Benoit hold that belt up. No, it, it is a very underrated moment compared to how much WrestleMania 20s talked about. Um, oh, definitely. And they obviously had plans because, you know, I don't know if this should have been after the paper, like after the match finished, because there's a, a whole angle really where Nash comes out and says, you know, uh, after midnight, I'm going to make your life a living hell and all that kind of stuff. So it would have been very interesting to see what they did with Benoit. And maybe this would have been the thing that, you know, uh, having the title then would have made Benoit instead of Benoit being ready for the title sort of thing, uh, having this, mm-hmm. the storyline where he's against the odds and he gains the sympathy and the fan support because he, he did have it. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm not at all saying that he didn't have it, but like, I just feel that placing him as champion, it very much felt like pressing the reset button. And you know why it happened though, don't you? Um, well, no, I don't. They thought it would make him stay because they thought he'd be a mark for the belt. Like, okay. I'll explain it in the post-match thing, but that's why they put it on him there. And, like, they left it open. I don't know if you noticed, but Tony points out, he's like, oh, um, Sid's foot went under the rope during the crossface, but I think he tapped out before his foot went under. So they're like, leave it open to debate. 
But yeah, Ben Ward does cut a great promo afterwards before Nash comes, you know, where he's talking about like people not believing in you and what have you. Mm. And I've thought during that promo, it feels like they're going to turn things around with Ben Ward as the champion. And Nash comes out and sadly fucks his lines because it is a cool angle. But he goes, sorry to turd puddle turd in your punch bowl. <laughs> but then it means tragically the last words that Chris Benoit ever says in WCW <laughs> as a champion is, well, from the little turd to the big turd, good luck. It's the fucking weirdest end to a pay-per-view or you run with a company. Or in fact, the last line of any sold out ever, because as you said, it was replaced by sin, is from the little turd to the big turd. Good luck. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I think it was like a bit of a risk because he probably wasn't that mainstream draw. Um, mm, true. But they were just trying to get him to stay by yeah. making him the champion. Like he was the leader of that group. <laughs> and it was like, if he wins the belt... He'll stay. It's like, allegedly, I'd like to say, because obviously the only source I have is Buffalo. There's another meeting with Bill Bush before Nitro the next day. Right. Bush says to them, like, as a compromise, Sullivan remains Booker, but not on Nitro. He'll do, like, Saturday nights. So, like, Nitro talent don't have to deal with that. And so, like, they were going to be okay with this, and that compromise was going to work. But then later in the day, Bush called another meeting, and said everyone but Benoit was being sent home for disciplinary measures for the mutiny. And Benoit said, well, I'm not going on the show if you send him a belt. If, sorry, if you send him my friends home. So Bush is like, well, we'll strip you of the belt then. And Benoit said, I'll read. And just took his release and left. Wow. So they oh. used the foot under the rope on Nitro. And they're like, well, you know, the foot was under the rope. Uh, it clearly shouldn't have happened. Jarrett just gets given the US belt back <laughs> because Nash is the commissioner, which I guess... It sounds shit, but it makes sense. He's the NWO leader. Why wouldn't he give the second in command in the NWO kind of thing? Yeah. But, but like, Arn Anderson at least gives a really good emotional promo where he talks about how much he's let himself down and he didn't notice the foot under the rope and shit like that. But it's just a messy way to end. It is. It definitely is. And uh, Benoit and crew would end up in WWF two weeks later. Um but, uh, yeah, sold out 2000. So, yeah, Mason's uh, comments. Mason's verdict on the main event. <gasps> I can't believe angry sheep hair lost. Well done, little man. Oh, that lovely. So, yeah, he did like that. We, we have some questions this week as well, because I've actually okay. remembered to write them down. So <laughs> we can answer them. Our first question from Bob, which I think I was supposed to answer last week, <laughs> was, you talked about Too Cool, and they have one of the most fun intros in wrestling, Norman Smiley aside. Who else would you include in the most fun intros? Do you want to go with that? Oh, when I get put on the spot, because there's so many terrible gimmicks that I love. Um, any Doink, Matt Bourne entrance, I love. Because <laughs> he would, because he, he would do something different every time, um, and I love that he like looks directly into the camera. Uh, always very fun uh, intro. So yeah, I, I would say immediately because it came to came to mind uh, the Matt Bourne as Doink intros. And to be fair, uh, I would say Warrior in '96 when he had all the pyro as well and the lights. Oh, yeah, that's fun. That is yeah. fun. For me, going strictly with fun and not being, like, cool intros. I would say 
tag team wise, probably like public enemy coming in, you know, and they're dancing <laughs> to the table and it's all the na 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 na. Because I just think they're like a fun, happy version of the Dudleys mixed with the Nasty Boys. <laughs> and I, I always really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. But for a singles guy, it's got to be Curry Man. <laughs> like Curry Man <laughs> took the like the dances that the Blue Meanie used to do and just took them way into the stratosphere of silliness. And like, I really loved a Curry Man intro. Oh, yeah, can't argue with that. So we, we have another question. The other question, and this is quite an intelligent one. <laughs> what are you saying about Bob? <laughs> Soz Bob. This is from Tom, and this was, I was thinking of buying a wrestling game recently as I haven't played one for a while. I, I should say it starts like Call My Bluff. There's a full story with it. <laughs> I, I was thinking of buying a wrestling game recently as I haven't played one for a while, and it made me realise that a lot of the better memories I have of wrestling during the early 2000s period aren't really anything to do with the promotions. It's more games like No Mercy, the SmackDown series, and WCW versus NWO Revenge. And I think without those games, I would have been a lot less invested than I was and probably would have stopped watching WWE earlier than I did. Do you think the games helped keep your interest at all? For me, during the invasion, yes, because with No Mercy, because you could change outfits and uh, take wrestlers off the game and just completely change the faces, etc. I went through a period of writing, because uh, I was sad, uh, like if someone wore different colour trunks, etc. And I was kind of updating attires um, to match what I'd just seen on TV. Uh, so that you know, kept me watching the invasion and, you know, probably know far too much about it. Sadly, I wish I could block some of that shit. I mean, yeah, I probably would have passed me GCSEs if I'd have fucking, you know. um, I don't think anybody who was writing that invasion had a single GCSE. (laughs) But in, in terms of, you know, just buying the games going forward, it was largely, you know, not because of what was on TV, but it was just, if you put some legends on, I'll definitely buy it. Uh, so it kind of worked the other way around where I wasn't watch- even watching it at that point, but we'll buy it if there's uh, you know, a cool Legends mode or something like that. But mm, That makes yeah. sense. Um, I mean, I'm biased because I've known Tom for a long time since we were kids and we used to play the shit out of those games that he's mentioned there. And I've said on the show before, my memories of early 2000s WWE before my sister got into it were my littler sister, I should say, not the one nearly my age who I watched the Monday Night Wars with. Mm-hmm. My littler sister, when she got into wrestling in 2007, I only periodically saw out from like 2001 onwards. And it was usually like parties that me and Tom was at where we used to buy the cheap DVDs from Granger Games and that to watch them. And the, really the only reason there was any interest in having those on as background is because we all used to play the shit out of those games and play the like multi-man modes where you've got like four people playing at the same time and six with the multi-tap on the PS2 and that. Yeah. So I definitely think those games, like, because I went so off the TV product, I can imagine me have been one of those people who just went totally to UFC and never looked back if it wasn't for those games. Yeah, I can I can understand that. And I've, I've got a lot of friends who recognize a lot of wrestlers just because of the games as well. Uh, I wouldn't have a fucking clue who people who weren't from TNA were in the 2000s <laughs> if it wasn't for the SmackDown games. I wouldn't even have the slightest clue. 
Well, usually if I'm like showing them something from 2000, like a Scotty Two Hockey match or something, they like, say, "Oh yeah, he was on the game," and you know, like that kind of thing. Um, and uh, uh, someone that I know, he he only recognizes Randy Savage because he was born so. <laughs> so Jesus Christ! <laughs> uh, so you know, I'm pointing out to him like all the Randy Savage because I've got like he he was born so. And he was born so. <laughs> you know, um. <laughs> Do you think Russo wrote that part for him since the match is only going to be three minutes of play time? Because you're not allowed a match longer than that when Russo's writing. <laughs> what do we have? Uh what do we have coming up? So for Turn Trickle 2000, I guess our next show is No Way Out, which is another one people probably all remember pretty well from that uh, Hell in a Cell match. That's just about the only thing I remember from that. Uh, my mind, even my, even yeah, even my memory will have to be chalked on. Uh... You don't remember it. I don't have a fucking chance because <laughs> I haven't seen it since two thousand. Oh uh, well, uh, again, because Christian favorite wrestler. I know you wore white mesh top instead of a black one, and it was the only time that ever happened. That's Those one important facts. Oh, I'll be full of them for this. I'll watch. I'll watch it again, and it would definitely will jog me memory on some of the absolute sh- shite that happened. Uh, I'm sure Taz was definitely pushed to the main event after a strong Royal Rumble. Uh, day. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, I'm I sure remember the radicals are dominating the show. Been <laughs> going out of those huge guaranteed contracts to accept much less money. It must be for great creative, right? Well, we'll we'll wait. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what else do we have coming up? Uh, and on our older school series of the the original Turntruckle, we're heading into summer territory, aren't we? We are. I'm excited because um, I, I I can tell there are certain shows that you're more excited about talking about, and you know, I, it's an education process for me with like sold out two thousand because like in those two thousand shows, uh, but I'm, I'm very you know, biased, basically. Uh, when it comes to, like, the older WWF shows, I do get very excited about any opportunity to talk about SummerSlam 1993. And I feel that you're going to want a favour of us eventually because you've let me uh, choose four SummerSlams to review. Um, I do like 92, though. <laughs> I, I like 92 a lot. It was one of the first ones I saw. I saw oh. 93. <laughs> I've seen odd matches from 94 and 95, but... It's an education process for me there. Cause... Did I make you watch 93 or did you watch it? No, no, it was on the Tide Classic, wasn't it? So oh, okay. Fair it so we are, uh, over the next month or so, we're going to cover some of the 1992, 93, 94 and 95. Um, very different events from each other and a very, you know, a gradual, you know, change in the dynamics of WWF. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see the differences between the years um as we go through them so I'm, I'm very excited to talk about those and and to be honest in the same way as i am with some of the wcw 2000 stuff i'm excited for people who have the same mindset as me to be mm-hmm. pleasantly surprised by how good some of the matches in SummerSlam 95 are because like uh, i'm sure i've seen three matches one is mabel versus diesel and it's like the worst thing ever but then that's what people judge the rest of that event with yeah. And I'm excited for people to know about some of the stuff that's worth watching and you can just turn it off for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> and that's the thing, like WCW is, like 2000 WCW from everything that I've seen so far, stuff that I haven't ever seen, it sounds horrible and patronizing, etc. but I'm like pleasantly surprised because again, you get given the spin 
and you get giving people's opinions that you know from those who haven't watched it and stuff like that and uh you definitely should give a lot of these shows a chance because i think you'd very much like the majority of it because obviously some of it doesn't age well but that could be said about attitude or wwf as well you can always fucking skip those matches <laughs> there, there is that the network i mean peacock doesn't exactly make it easy for you but the network does uh, allow you to do that quite quickly so yeah yeah exactly so uh on that note uh i want to obviously thank mason who's definitely the star of the show and <laughs> yes, uh <laughs> from uh myself and tempest we will see you all next week see you then